What is the sweet spot, and how can fantasy players take advantage? I'll ask Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 23rd. It's show number 37 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey, fantasy writer at The Athletic, discussing projecting the increasingly unprojectable, the sweet spot, 2020's undervalued hitters, some hot streaks, his boons and banes, and a whole lot more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including Brian McCann, Billy Hamilton, and other National League player news, and Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including multiple moves going on in Houston, the Detroit outfield situation, and other American League tidbits. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about some prospect call-ups who have the potential to help fantasy teams down the stretch. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas right-hander Emmanuel Close. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at two marquee National League East matchups in New York. On Saturday, the Braves' Max Fried is up against right-hander Zach Wheeler of the Mets. And on Sunday, it's an all-lefty tilt with Dallas Keuchel facing Steven Matz. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about where all the Lima guys have gone. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Max Scherzer is back. We gotta talk some baseball. Washington right-hander Max Scherzer, one of the top fantasy pitchers in the game, returned to the lineup on Thursday from the injured list where he'd been on the shelf since July 25th with a sore back. I can empathize. Scherzer started and threw four innings in the Nationals' 7-1 romp over the Pirates. He told reporters he took it easy in his return, trying to be a pitcher instead of a rear-back-and-fire power pitcher. And while he struck out only three batters in his four innings, his fastball velocity looked pretty good, down only half a mile an hour. Scherzer also said he doesn't feel like he's out of the woods just yet. He wants to see how he feels after a night's sleep. But cross your fingers that Max Scherzer is back and ready to go. Baseball needs him, and fantasy baseball needs him. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball writer at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for having me again. Oh, it's, uh, of course, my pleasure uh, to have you. I think we had you back in June and then uh, just before the season, so you're a favorite here at Baseball HQ Radio. And as you know, I like to start by asking, you know, how are your teams doing in your various leagues? Uh, you know, not that well, not that poorly. I have a couple of teams that still have a chance to win. I don't have that many teams this year. Um, uh, the big teams that were a disaster, I mean, my uh, main event team, I've been struggling to get out of the last place, which I've finally done. Um, and then Tau Wars has not been good either, but my other leagues are pretty good. I still have a chance to win two. And my best league this year has been this uh, sort of historical score sheet league that I play. 
and I usually don't play it during the season. I usually play it in the off season. But that team is uh, that team started off thirty four and eight, and um, and so it's just cruising. Maybe you know it's come down a little bit since then because nobody goes that. But in those leagues, if you win ninety ninety two games, you almost always win the division. So to have a record like that is really uh, is really good, and I'm really happy that something I'm doing is working. So. You said it was a historical league. Is that one of those deals where you can draft you or do draft players from yesteryear, and is it confined to an era, or could you draft? Could you have Lou Gehrig and Henry Aaron on your team? Yes, you can. You, um, it's a cap league, so everyone's got a cap, so you're restricted in the number of stars that you can have. Um, but yes, you can have. You know, for instance, my two big stars on this team are Chulis Joe Jackson and Frank Robinson, batting one and two. I might add. And do you pick them for a specific year, or is their career weighed in, and then they uh, the computer generates stats for you as you play your games? You can up? do it either way. I mean, the, the basic way, which is what I'm doing in this one, is they're coded according to their according to their peak. Um, but it's a big peak. I think it's uh, five to seven years, depending on the player. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, you can you can do it either way. But this is a this is a sort of amalgam. Of the way they're coded for this, based on career, not single season. It sounds like a really interesting way to play. You know, my very first fantasy game that I ever played, my buddy and I in high school, he was a baseball fan and I was, and where we went to high school, baseball was a distant third to hockey and football. So it was it was good to have a kindred spirit. And somewhere or other, we came up with this game from Sports Illustrated. It was a board game, and basically there was about maybe 60 player cards, and you either dealt them out or drafted them, and, and they were all the these historical players, Babe Ruth and Gehrig and, you know, all of the DiMaggio and all of these great players and pitchers from the past. And you kind of learn which player cards worked best. And then you'd either draft them or just deal them and and then you'd play it out. And it was a fun game and it was interesting. And you kept score on a score on an actual score sheet and it was fun. But the problem with the game was everybody knew whoever got Babe Ruth was going to win. There was he was so much he was like a, an order of magnitude better than Ted Williams or or Frank Robinson if you want to pick him or any player who ever lived whatever amount of points they could generate Babe Ruth could generate double and I often wondered why they would have put a card into this into the game like that that basically guaranteed that whoever had it won we eventually took the card out of the game. Well, that is interesting. In this game, Babe Ruth is so expensive that it's really impossible to put together a of any kind of a balanced team if you have them. I mean, he's, he's by himself a third of the value of your entire team. So, I mean, you can see that makes it really hard to get anybody else that's that's good. He's great, and he should be, but, um, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't use him unless you're in what they call high-cap leagues, which are special custom leagues, where, where then it makes plenty of sense to get him because he is the best player um, in this game as he probably was in the history of baseball. How did you guys acquire your players in the first place? Draft, auction? Well, what you do is you have a cap, and then they run a draft. It's exclusive ownership. So um, you're randomly assigned a place in the draft, and you rank your players according to the how you want to get them. Um, and you usually get almost everybody that you want, but there are certain players. The salaries change also according to how popular they are. Um, for instance, in this game, Frank Robinson hadn't been popular for a while, or Joe Jackson too. 
so their salaries had fallen relative to other superstars, so I put them right at the top of the list and, and got them both. Um, if you don't get them, they substitute what they consider to be the next the next uh, most comparable player, and you can, before the season, you can manipulate it. You can drop them if you don't like them and pick up somebody else. During the season, if you drop a player, um, you, you, you get only 75% of his salary, so it makes it harder to do that, you know, harder to um, play games with it. And uh, do you keep players from year to year, or is it a redraft? You, um, you in custom leagues, you can keep them from year to year, but in these leagues, it's just it's just a one shot thing. You know, three games a day takes nine weeks to play a season. I know a couple of years ago you started playing DFS in earnest, and we'll talk about this later, but partly because you said it was turning into the fairest way to assess player uh, how your acumen at, at assessing players. Uh, how are you doing in DFS this year? Are you playing a lot? Yeah, and I'm winning. I'm, I'm in a slump now, but I'm still ahead for the year, which is a first for me. I mean, in the last few years, I've been close to winning money, but not actually doing it. Um, this year, I've gotten closer to the top of winning a couple of the tournaments. I still haven't finished in first, which, as you know, if you play, you really got to finish on the top three to make serious money. But... Um, I'm happy with what's going on, except for the last week or so, and I have not been playing, you know, my guys haven't been doing anything. But I still hold that to be true. I still think that DFS is the, you know, the greatest. Uh, right now, it's the it's the best um, indicator of what you know, I think. Well, let's talk about that. In a column a while back at The Athletic, you said, and I quote, the scientific analysis we rely on as far as player projections isn't taking us any further in making accurate forecasts, and that as a result, drafts and auctions, and again, I quote, are less and less indicative of baseball knowledge now that the world has changed. What did you mean by the world has changed? Well, I mean, there's so many injuries. The world has changed in that there are better options available. You know, as I've said before, um, the auction or the draft that you do in, in March is really a snapshot. It's the best you could do at that time. I mean, that very day, often something changes. Certainly in the next couple of days, something will change. There's a normal, there's a normal changing of the guard in every baseball season, as you know. You know, some players get better, some players get worse. But I think my big, the, the point that I was really trying to make there, and it, it surprises me, that you know we have more data, we have better data, and it really hasn't helped make forecast forecasting any more accurate. You know it seems to be that forecasts, the good forecasts, the good projection models are somewhere between sixty-seven and seventy-three percent accurate, and usually the one that's seventy-three percent accurate this year is sixty-seven next year, and you know roughly like that, and that surprises me. Um, and I think that it tells us that maybe we're at a point where barring a breakthrough um, in statistical analysis, we've taken projections about as far as they can go. Yeah. uh, I wonder though, Gene, how good was the forecasting ever, you know? And I wonder from that point of view, has forecasting really declined or are we just increasingly aware of its shortcomings? Well, I think that's true. We are. And I don't think it was ever bad. Um, I don't think it really has declined. I just don't think it, it's improved, uh, w- which, as I say, surprises me given the given the better data. And that's why over this winter I'm going to be working on seeing if I can use the the new statistics and, and blend them together and, and come up with something that um, 
that works better than what we had in the past. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it. I kind of doubt that I'll be able to do it. But And then the other thing is that everyone has access to better information, and that also levels the playing field. It makes it more luck-driven. Yeah, I think that's been the case for quite a few years as the information exploded out on the internet. The, the margins you could get by knowing more than the next guy were, be, were being really shrunken and you had to start moving into these more esoteric things. And as you said, it's it's dubious at, at, at this point, I think, that a lot of these new statistics that we're using and applying and thinking about are actually moving the ball significantly forward. Uh, you said in that same column that best ball draft and hold formats are the future for those of us who like to play full season games. What do you like about best ball and why do you think it's uh, an improvement over playing you know, the traditional fantasy styles? Well, not only best ball, but the NFBC leagues where you draft 50 players because they take, because you can take injuries into account. You can say, well, what if this, what if that? Um, I think that it's um, it's an intelligent reaction to all the injuries and to the fact that you know things change during the course of a season that we have no way of really knowing before the season. So if you you know use your imagination a little bit, I think that they're um, that they're going to become more popular. I like them better. I seem to be doing better in them, um, and I, and I think that also from football, um, as people come over where there's a lot of best ball. Um, I think people are going to want that, and and I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really intelligent market reaction to to all the injuries and the unpredictability. One thing I like about it, and I dipped my toe in the water a little bit, but I haven't got into it entirely. One of the th- advantages that I think is that it allows you to play more leagues and and try different strategies because you're not committing yourself to that, you know, weekly grind of go every Sunday you have to sit down and go, oh gosh, I got twelve leagues to go through and I got to check every different league's free agent pool. I got to check my own team. I got, and it becomes a real labor you know and, and i think if you're having a hobby it shouldn't be that much work right i'm not that good at doing that and that's you know i think that's part of my problem and um i just seem to miss something you know every week uh, not every week but you know i just miss the implications of a particular injury or that somebody got dfa'd and therefore somebody else is going to play that sort of thing and uh, the people who are on top of that are the people who were winning the big money things. I mean, I think it's really obvious these days that the in-season players are the people who are winning. A few years ago, when we talked about this, you said you thought uh, full-season salary cap games were the best player assessment tests. Uh, how do you feel about salary cap games in the full-season format these days? Well, I still think they're you know better than um, full-season roto or roto games, but I think that they've been superseded by DFS. Um, although, as we've talked about before, I, I'd like to see you know week-long DFS games, weekend-long, that sort of thing. You know, variations where where there's more than one game. Um, but basically, they they enable you to react to the new realities. They enable you to react to injuries. You know, there's nothing that we can do. If you didn't get Josh Bell this year, you just got to sit and wait for it. You know, there's nothing you can do about it in a full season league. In these things, hey, you know, I can take him tonight and not take him tomorrow. Um, when it, when a player has clearly reached another level, if you missed out on that, well, you know, now I can do something about it. 
the uh, Tout Wars Daily Fantasy League, uh, w- I think you were in the finals, as a matter of fact, and I'll get to that in a second, but the design there is y- you play for a long time and you amass points over a period, which seems to be a nice combination of how to uh, combine the uh, player assessment acumen you need to succeed on a daily basis, but also uh, establishes a longer timeline that, that reduces the amount of luck involved in it, I think. And uh, I wonder, how do, you, how do you like that kind of league format where you're playing, um, I think it was four or five segments during the year, and it's quite complicated, but the, the point is that it rewards you for being good over time rather than being good tonight. Yeah, I, I, I'm all for it. I think it's great. Um, I actually did not do that well in the, in the playoffs. In fact, I'm out because I took Aaron Sanchez. But I figured, you know, you got to take chances somewhere. And the, the pitching that night was expensive, and I needed a cheap pitcher, and I picked the wrong one. He's such a strange pitcher. He is that. Uh, something else I've been thinking about, Gene, is all of these new technologies and training methods. And uh, I don't know if you've read The MVP Machine by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sochik, but it's a really interesting book. And it seems that a lot of the technology and training that they discuss in the book and that you can read about online, these machines that assess spin rate down to the thousandth of an RPM and get you, you know, 10,000 frames per second of your pitching grip so you can manipulate how you throw the ball, all of these kind of things. But they're all happening, or a lot of them are happening in private centers. They're out of our view, like driveline baseball up in Seattle. How do you think the development of these advanced technologies and the accompanying training methods are affecting our ability to generate accurate projections and especially to identify breakout candidates, considering they seem to be happening kind of behind a screen? Well, I think that they make it more difficult. You know, in the beginning of a season or during the, over the winter, we're, we're trying to calculate um, who's a good chance to move way up and who's got a good chance to move way down. Um, something else to it. I mean, it's another bit of information. Um, I, the overall effect of it may be, I mean, there's something, I don't know that this is true, but I think it bears watching, is that it increases the reward for speculating at drafts. And I think that also lends itself to, to the best ball 50-man team roster thing where you spend your reserve picks taking chances on these guys. I mean, if we don't, if we obviously we don't know, if we know in advance going in, okay, that's a bit of information. If we don't know, well, we still know that so-and-so needs to improve his game, and if you take a bunch of people who have, say, one or two demonstrated skills but are missing other, you know, big parts of the game, that it takes overall as a, you know, as a general player pool it's going to make more sense to take those guys because one or two of them are going to emerge. I think that that's true, but I'm going to bear it in mind during uh, during my prep this year. I was thinking about how I'm going to prep too, and I think uh, for the first time in a long time, I think it's going to behoove us to pay a lot more attention to spring training where, where guys are going to take this the new skills, assuming they've developed a, a new skill or refined a skill that they already had, like uh, uh, well, Trevor Bowers, the kind of poster child for this with his high-speed cameras, and he's really always tinkering with his delivery and getting more break and different directions of break on his on his pitches, especially on his breaking stuff and, and slider. And 
I think where that's going to show up, if it's going to show up at all, is it could be during spring training. So we're now moving away from the analytics per se into a more narrative-driven thing. And then we get into the whole question of is it news or is it noise? And, and I think that part of it is interesting. But if a pitcher especially comes into spring training next year and seems to be having much better results I know that sometimes we write it off to, oh, he's only pitching against second stringers and college kids and, you know, A-ball guys. But I'm also going to be real curious to see if uh, if some of those pitchers have actually done something new and really improved, and maybe I'm going to catch next year's, you know, Mike Miner. I agree. Um, I think that it pays to make a list of them. You know, what, also, to get more specific, what exactly is the guy doing? What did he need to do? Um, you figure that they know, all players know what they need to do to improve. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you read in a story that so-and-so was at, uh, you know, went to the to the place in Seattle, the driveline baseball, um, there's more than one. There's another one in New York, I think, that uh, Harrison Bader went to. Um, but that sort of thing, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it, when you hear that, you should put a tick next to the guy and say, you know, okay, it doesn't mean I'm going to take him in the third round, but it does mean I'm going to take him in the 25th um, for those players where that's appropriate. And I think that it makes a, a whole lot of sense to make, to take a whole lot of chances um, at that end of the draft. I agree. And I think the challenge or, or the difficulty is, as I said, so much of it happens out of sight. And the only way we're going to hear about it is in, you know, some story in a local paper where, you know, you wouldn't believe what Mike Miner's doing with his curveball this year. It looks entirely new or, or the, an interview with him where he says he's actually done stuff. And we, we see that little smatterings of it here and there online where, uh, I don't know if you saw the YouTube video with Josh Donaldson explaining how he swings the bat and, Oh my goodness, Gene, it's so detailed. Like the, the way he wants to, they call it maximizing your kinetic chain. You know, you anchor your feet to the ground in such a way, you point your feet in such a way. This hip has to be here. My hands have to be here. This is what I'm trying to do. And it's all very, very, very tightly focused and, and tightly organized in a way that I don't think it was. You remember the anecdote about Yogi Berra trying to explain where to put his hands and move his hips and finally just says, ah, to hell with it. Just watch me do it. You know, and that was, and that was hitting coaching for a long time. It was, it was sort of these, these vague generalities and that's really changed. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's an old HQ column that you guys run, which is, the, you know, one skill away. I think it might pay a, pay people to pay extra attention to that this year and move those guys up on their, you know, again, not taking them in the third round, but the guys who, you know, who are one skill away and figure that, well, they're going to be working on it this winter. I mean, they have every incentive to do that. Um, so... They won't all come through, but I think enough of them might come through that it pays to pay extra attention to that column. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic, the wise guy of fantasy baseball. And Gene, I've been seeing and hearing some expert commentary about how this year's action should inform next year's planning. And since most of us are looking ahead to next year already, let's touch on that briefly. Uh, assuming the home run explosion is here to stay and the stolen bases continue to decline, how do you think we need to be planning our hitting in 2020 and beyond? Well, we need more power. Um, I think stolen bases are in excellent shape. And there are 43 players 
as of today, who've stolen 10 or more bases. Um, that makes it, with stolen bases down overall, I think we're in a dream world for the, for that. So as long as you pay attention to it, you know, to your 10, 15 stolen base guys, um, you're in really good shape. Power is more difficult. You believe this. 5% of the main event teams in the NFBC have 300 home runs already this year. 37% of the NFBC teams have 275 or more home runs. Um, I mean, basically, I mean, to have 300 home runs, I mean, you have to have 21.4 home runs per roster slot. So I think that we should go into next year, bang, hey, I'm going to need 25 home runs. You know, we're still not in September yet. You basically need 25 home runs per roster slot in order to, you know, compete at the highest level. So bear that in mind. And, you know, when you think you have enough power, get another power hitter. And uh, how is it going to make you think about your pitching? Well, I I mean, it's kind of relative, um, but I think that you should try to avoid the the pitchers who are particularly home run vulnerable, which doesn't, by the way, mean necessarily mean fly ball pitchers, although they probably should come down a little bit contrary. I mean, I've loved them all these years, but, um, you know, you have to react to reality. So um, they take a tick, they take a tick down because, um, you know, some of the home run things are unbelievable. Um, you know, the, the pitchers who've allowed home runs. I was looking at, uh, you realize that David Hess has allowed 28 home runs in 75 innings? I mean, that's unbelievable. You know what else is unbelievable is Justin Verlander allowing as many home runs as he had. I read a statistic the other day online somewhere that it's like two-thirds of the runs he's allowed have been the result of home runs, and if he was just allowing home runs at the normal rate for him over the over the years, one home run per nine innings or whatever it happens to be, if, if you normalize his earned run performance this year based on fewer home runs allowed, then all of a sudden his already pretty good ERA becomes really spectacular, but the home runs have, have done him in as they have done in a lot of uh, pitchers, but it seems to be a kind of a tide that's lifting up and, and affecting all pitchers. So it's, I don't know that it's really that significant as long as everybody does it, unless you can find pitchers, as you said, who seem to be able to not give up home runs. And there are still a few of them. There are pitchers out there who are giving up less than a home run per nine innings, and that's really good in this environment. Right. Well, of course, with Verlander, I mean, the old cliche, well, as long as they're solo home runs, I mean, that really does apply to him because he gives up very few hits and very few walks. And so the solo home run is not going to beat you, as they used to say. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of validity to that. So, you know, as long as they're solo home runs, it doesn't matter um, very much. I mean, and, you know, I mean, he's still a legit Cy Young contender despite all the home runs. Uh, and that tells you. You know, that should tell you everything you need to know. I mean, it can be, it's not the end of the world as long as you control how many runs score when you give up a home run, which he seems able to do. And that's certainly true. A 167 uh, home run per nine this year uh, after a career of being down around, you know, one, one, one point. 
0088, things like that. So it is a big thing. Now, the possible flying the ointment here, Gene, is we keep hearing these rumblings that Major League Baseball might do something to dejuice the baseball because they're concerned about the the uh, explosion of home runs that has occurred. Assuming we won't know that the ball has changed until after most of us have drafted next year, how can we hedge our bets on hitters to cover the possibility that there's going to be a lot fewer home runs than we might expect? It'll be back to, you know, 2018. Well, I am not operating on that with that assumption. I'm, I don't think there's anything to lose by not operating on that assumption because if, if home runs fall, well, they'll fall for everybody. And it will be, you're still going to need a ton of home runs. Um, remember, home runs are four-category events. Um, they should be the backbone of everyone's offense. And even if they're down overall, relatively speaking, you're still going to need to have more than everybody else. So that's the way I'm going to draft. I'm going to say the hell with it. And then if it happens, well, I'm not going to be hurt, I don't think. No, that's certainly true. I'm just wondering about the what they said about the explosion this year was it disproportionately advantaged the 20 to 22 home run guys and made them 27 to 30 home run guys. But the Giancarlo Stantons and, and Aaron Judges, I know they're hurt, but guys like that didn't benefit as much because everything, every home run they hit is a mile out of the park. And, and uh, the, the ball was benefiting that extra 10 feet, the warning track guys. And if you reverse that process, then uh, the, the big power guys are unaffected largely. And it's the, uh, you know, the, the, lesser home run guys who are climbing up towards 30 who may slink back but i think you're right as long as you get the home run guys if everybody sinks back at roughly the same rate he who has the most wins yeah and also i mean i think that's a pretty marginal consideration because i do think it affects the big home run guys sure when they when they nail the ball it goes out no matter where you are but what about the balls oh he just missed it you know and it's caught on the warning track Though, you know, Giancarlo Stan hits a lot of those, so I think it affects them and helps them too. So, but we'll see. I think, generally speaking, there's a marginal, um, you're right in the marginal sense that it helps the 20 to 25 guys, but or the 15 to 18 guys. Um, but I think it really does help everybody, and that's a marginal consideration. And as you said, if the 15 to 18 guys all uh, fall back to 15 to 18, then they're all going to do it more or less equally. And so nobody's really affected that much. And uh, there there are going to be other factors that I think uh, build into it. Uh, Gene, great talk so far. Uh, We need to get out to our player news reports with Nick and Jock. Can you take a breather, ice down your voice box, and come back in a couple of minutes? I'm ready. Gene McCaffrey writes for The Athletic, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. The 0-1. Swung on and hit well to left field. Get out of here, baseball! It's gone! Oh, my God! Can you believe it? Johnny Vance has tied it up. Amazing. Absolutely Amazing. He makes a tour, and I'll tell you what, you can't write anything like that. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Little bit of internet connectivity trouble in Louisiana. 
We got Harold on the phone. Harold Nichols, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Atlanta, where Brian McCann was placed on the 10-day injured list on Wednesday. He's got a left knee sprain. Phil Hurts covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. How long will McCann be out of the lineup, and what happens to his playing time? McCann has been having a very nice bounce-back season, largely because he's managed to stay healthy. Uh, The Braves are hoping that he'll be back in a couple of weeks, although we're not sure exactly what that phrase means at this point, but... Tyler Flowers figures to get the balls of the starts while McCann is out. Like McCann, he's been in a slump over the last month. In ring play on August 21st, he had only seven hits, one homer in his last 47 at-bats. Doesn't sound very good, Nick. Uh, the team also recalled a catcher, Alex Jackson, from AAA. Does he figure to be any kind of asset? That doesn't seem likely. Uh, with Burnett, he has 25 homers and 290 at-bats, but that power comes with a 224 average and 114 strikeouts. Jackson was up briefly earlier in 2019 when Flowers and McCann were dinged up at the same time, and he went 0 for 10. Atlanta also made some small point-size headlines by claiming outfielder Billy Hamilton off waivers from Kansas City earlier this week. Does Billy Hamilton figure to play enough in Atlanta for his stolen base potential to be of any help to fantasy teams? Word out of Atlanta is that Hamilton's role will be to provide late-inning defense and pinch running. Uh, if so, he could be of use to, uh, to only to teams in a close stolen base race and only if they can take the hit across the board in the other hitting categories. Even in steals, there's some warning signs that after four straight seasons of 50-plus steals, Hamilton declined to 34 in 2018 and to 18 so far in 2019. His speed score, which regularly approached 200, is down to 146 this year. So maybe, maybe not. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought when I saw the news. I wondered if he'd play at all until September when they can call him up and then they have a lot of leeway to use him as an outfield replacement, maybe a stolen base uh, threat in the late innings when you need a pinch runner because like a fantasy team, Nick, uh, Atlanta can't afford to carry an offensive dead spot in their uh, on their roster, in their lineup, in their active lineup particularly. They can't trot a guy out there who's so unable to get on base or to do anything useful other than stealing bases. The good thing about a pinch runner, if you think about it, is he's not going to accumulate a bad batting average because he's not going to hit. But because he's not going to hit, he's not going to get any RBIs. He's not going to get any any slugging percentage. He's not going to get any on-base percentage. Uh, And so if you're going to take that kind of a hit in your fantasy lineup in order to get whatever stolen bases he might come up with, and we've talked about Atlanta before, Nick, and the, the one thing that they seem to have in some abundance is outfielders. Certainly he's not, uh, Hamilton's not going to defensively or otherwise replace Ronald Acuna. We wouldn't expect him to really supplant to Ender Inciarte, uh, I, and I just don't get it. Uh, I, I don't see a lot here, to be honest with you, unless, like I said, uh, and like you said, if you're on a fantasy team where stolen bases is something that might gain you some points and you can afford to have an otherwise dead spot in your lineup, I guess he's okay, but otherwise uh, I think it's a hard pass. Uh, in Pittsburgh, the Pirates placed right-hander Chris Archer on the 10-day IL on Wednesday. He's got some inflammation in his right shoulder. That's always bad news. Those shoulder inflammation issues often presage something that's way worse. Uh, Rick Green for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, is this the end of 2019 for Chris Archer? Well, this could be uh, indeed be a rough ending to a rough season for Archer. Pittsburgh has not ruled out Archer for 2019, but Rick Green says he wouldn't be surprised if the Pirates shut him down, especially since there isn't anything for them to play for. So 
So we'll hold off from wiping out the playing time for Archer completely until the team reevaluates him in a week to 10 days. I noticed uh, the team also recalled a right-hander named Dario Agrazel and a relief pitcher, Parker Markle, from AAA. Any fantasy interest there? Probably not. Agrazel uh, was a member of the rotation in previous stints, but he was used in relief on Wednesday and tossed two scoreless innings. In Colorado, they placed the right-hander John Gray on the 60-day injured list. He has a broken left foot, and this is serious news, I think, Nick. Uh, Rob Carroll covered the story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ. Uh, this is not a new situation for Gray with this foot injury. What's going on here? Yeah, as you said, this is serious news. It's the same fracture that caused him to miss two and a half months in 2017. Uh, the scan confirmed that the fracture had reoccurred. Uh, Gray is now mulling over having surgery, which... Uh, he chose not to do in 2017. A surgery or no, his return time level looks to be spring training 2020, uh, and even then with probably a continued injury risk. Yeah, two times for any injury is not good news. I mean, once you've, especially a fracture, uh, they say that the bone comes back stronger, but uh, apparently it didn't in this case. The Rockies called up a right-hander named Tim Melville to take Gray's place on the roster and in the rotation, it appears. What should we expect from Tim Melville? Rob Carroll put it nicely when he said that Melville stepped out of a triple-A shuttle and into a glass slipper. He was pressed into duty right away on Wednesday against Arizona, pitched seven innings of two-hit, one-run baseball. Uh, he last pitched in September 2017 for San Diego, had never pitched more than four innings in any outing, and had entered the game with an 11.05 ERA with 15 walks and 15 career innings pitched in the big league. So Melville most certainly earned himself at least another start, but once the rotation gets beyond uh, German Marquez, the Rockies will be hard-pressed to find someone who can duplicate uh, Melville's enchanted turn. Uh, more playing time adjustments are still likely coming as the Rockies try to figure out their rotation. Well, when I saw the news that Melville had been called up, of course, the first thing I did was I turned to the Baseball HQ uh, Daily Call-Ups report. It's a very valuable resource at this time of year when these young players are coming up. And uh, not that great of a report, Nick, I have to tell you. A 6D rating, a 6 means a sort of borderline player, kind of a fringe player. His potential ceiling, they said, maybe a fifth starter, swingman type of guy currently an emergency starting pitcher only so uh, if anybody's looking at Tim Melville thinking boy this is uh, something that I got to be really looking at between that kind of paltry pedigree and the fact he's pitching half his games in Colorado I think I'd give him a miss yeah I think I would too I mean I rely like you I rely on those on those uh, call-up reports a lot to get an indication of what a guy is really like and what his his uh, real prospects are in the major leagues and so a 60 I would really stay away from. Fastball uh, barely cracks 90. A curveball's nothing special. A slider's nothing special. He's a, he's a guy, you know, if, if you're playing in a real deep league and you want some innings, I guess you could do worse, but uh, I don't know how. Uh, the New York Mets called up veteran outfielder Rajai Davis. How about Rajai Davis still sticking around after all these years on Tuesday? Called him up from AAA, and I saw him actually playing that night. I was watching a game on TV. But at this stage... In his life, is Rajay Davis going to be able to contribute any fantasy value? Well, the, the Mets found themselves short of position player when J.D. Davis came up lame on Sunday. Uh, J.D. Davis was back in the lineup, but the Mets apparently decided they could use one more batter for a while, and it's the call-up of Rajai Davis. Um, he has spent all but a few days this season at AAA. He's 744 OPS with eight homers and 20 steals. 
expectations he'll be primarily a pinch hitter and or a pinch runner. Um, his tenure is a bit tenuous since the Mets have several injured players nearing to return. Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo, Jed Lowry could return and push him off the roster, but of course, rosters expand on September 1, so he could stay in the majors for the rest of the year. And if so, you know, in a way, it's kind of a similar situation with what Billy Hamilton is, which is kind of that late inning pinch runner, pinch hitter, maybe that kind of thing. But of the two, I think I like Rajay Davis better. He's poked the odd home run for one thing, which is something that's, I don't think, I don't know if Billy Hamilton's ever put a bell over the fence, even with the juice ball. He's got a couple of inside the parkers. But uh, I think if if I was looking at the free agent list in my league and I said, it's got to be Rajay Davis or Billy Hamilton, I'm leaning to Rajay. Yeah, I would, too. I would, too. As you said, a little more power than Hamilton. Uh, batting average generally a little bit higher. And at this point, maybe even a better better chance for getting the stolen bases. And finally, speaking of speed, uh, St. Louis recalled their outfielder Harrison Bader on Tuesday, and they optioned outfielder Randy Arozarena back to AAA. We talked about Arozarena last week. What's the latest in the St. Louis outfield? Bader spent about three weeks in AAA, compiled a 1275 OPS over 75 plate appearances. Uh, Assuming he's going to get regular playing time, he's probably worth a shot for most fantasy teams down the stretch. Uh, Arozarena was only up for a week during uh, that time he went two for eight. Likely back next month, but Phil Hertz figures he's more of a consideration for owners in keeper leagues than in redraft leagues. All right, Nick, uh, not a lot of real uh, high-profile news this week, but I appreciate you taking the time, and we'll catch up with you again in seven days. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League beat for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. On we go to the American League Baseball HQ columnist, analyst, and director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Uh, Doing a little better than the Houston Astros of late. They seem to be uh, experiencing a little bit of trouble as they get near the playoffs, particularly with Carlos Correa back on the DL. This time he has some lower back issues. Also, they lost Aaron Sanchez to a pectoral muscle issue. And Ryan Presley, arguably their most effective reliever, is done for probably the year and maybe the playoffs as well. They've made a bunch of interesting, shall we say, moves recently to try to cover all these uh, incidents, the most intriguing being the call-up of Abraham Toro, a prospect for his MLB debut. You watch Houston closely as part of your regular coverage of the American League West. You write about the Astros frequently. What are you seeing going on in Houston? Yeah, you know, the backstory on Correa is that he's just become increasingly fragile. If you look at his last two seasons, he's barely... uh, recorded over 400 at-bats in each one of them, and now he's probably not even going to get 400 uh, at-bats this year. Last year, he had similar back woes. He came back in August and September, and get this, he hit 133. I'm sorry, he hit under 200, about 160, 170, something like that, and 133 at-bats over the final weeks of August and September. And uh, so now, with Correa on the shelf again in less than six weeks in the remaining season uh, in the regular season the club finds itself in uh, with a bit of a problem Um, they've also got Josh Reddick slumping Um, the call-up of Toro is interesting I didn't see that coming just because he wasn't on the the 40-man roster but he's been their hottest hitter in AAA Uh, um, he was uh, let me see if I got my numbers here right yeah he'd gone 28 for 66 in August uh, since being promoted to AAA 10 to 5 walk to strikeout ratio and he was playing third base last night as uh, 
Um, Alex Bregman moved over to shortstop to replace uh, Correa, so um, he might have a chance to win some playing time depends on, depending on what happens there. Well, we saw earlier this year, Jock, with Jordan Alvarez that the Astros certainly seem very willing to play the hot hand coming out of the minor leagues. Uh, the call-up of Alvarez was something of a surprise given that Houston had quite a, a surplus of outfielders. And speaking of outfielders in Houston, what about Reddick? Is there any chance, given the slump that he's been in now for a while, that he could lose some at-bats to Kyle Tucker as we hear near the end of the regular season? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, now he's he's got a, a, a 453 OPS over 129 second half at bats, and they're not going to play him in the postseason if if he's still doing that. Uh, he's got no homers and a 178 batting average. He's he's been both bad and unlucky, as a 21% hit rate uh, suggests uh, since uh, the end of June. But his power's been missing all season in a year when everyone else is hitting home runs. So if he doesn't turn it around soon, I see Tucker, um, who... Uh, Tucker right now, um, 32 home runs, a 28 to four stolen base, uh, uh, caught stealing ratio in, in triple a round rock rock. He's going to come up in late August, early September. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Tucker steals, uh, steals playing time from Reddick. And what about this pitching staff situation? We talked about Aaron Sanchez and how good he might be playing for the Astros because of their organizational smarts. They're really good at dealing with pitchers and and optimizing their pitchers. Now uh, Aaron Sanchez on the IL, it's uncertain when or if he'll come back. But this isn't really that big of a deal. They're They're pretty solid in the rotation anyway. They are, and uh, honestly, Presley had been struggling for a while with this knee. He'd been on the DL before. His uh, his ERA has been a little over four since the since uh, the second half began. Actually, to be honest, since the 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 end of uh, uh, July is a little more accurate. Um, I don't think they're as concerned about the pitching as they are about Correa and the offense. Uh, the club's already a playoff shoe in. Garrett Cole's come back successfully from a bulky hamstring. They have uh, the rotation lined up pretty well. Um, they can replace the, the number five guy, Sanchez, in the rotation with Framber Valdez, Rogelio, Armenteros, or, or Jose Urquidy this coming Sunday, and then make calls on who's going to be the number five guy from there. But that's not going to matter in the postseason. Uh, the, the bullpen should have enough depth to cover the Presley loss. Biagini's return from the DL. Josh James will be coming back soon. And Joe Smith's been very good since coming back midseason. Will Harris has been fine all year helping Presley set up. So definitely not as big a concern as the bats are right now. Yeah, that's what I thought when I looked at the story. Uh, obviously, they had some plans for Aaron Sanchez, and I think uh, there's still some plans as we look forward to 2020 and beyond. But as far as the rest of this season goes, it's going to be business as usual in that rotation. Yeah, it is. Um, they've got uh, they've got four pretty good guys, uh, and uh, um, right now at least they're healthy, so uh, no cause for concern there. In Detroit, they made a bunch of outfield moves. Now they've made a bunch more outfield moves. Uh, Kristen Stewart was activated from the uh, concussion IL, then immediately demoted to AAA, and this leaves a projected Detroit outfield. We have Victor Reyes, Harold Castro, Travis Demerit, none of whom has much experience. Uh, Demerit and Castro making their debuts this year. Obviously, Kristen Stewart could be recalled after expansion, depending on how he's feeling. 
adding another rookie to the mix. Tom Kephart wrote up this entire situation in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. When we look at all these guys, is there anybody here worthy of a September look for fantasy purposes? You know, honestly, on the on the West Coast, I I just have not watched much of the of the Tigers, and it's not just that they just haven't been very good this season, and they haven't been very productive. Uh, in fact, the Tigers are are dead last in MLB runs scored, thirtieth uh, out of all thirty major league teams. And if you look at these guys' numbers, the outfield's been part of the problem. Now, the flip side of that is there's, there's obviously opportunity uh, for anyone who gets hot. Our, our playing time page shows uh, Harold Castro, Victor Reyes, and Travis Demerit uh, projected to get most of the at-bats uh, down the stretch. Demerit has at least been interesting since his August call-up, uh, 268 batting average with two home runs and four steals through 71 at-bats. But his shaky 62% contact and 40% hit rate are big red flags. This could, his performance could go south in a hurry. Castro has held his own in the second half, but as I mentioned, it's empty. One home run, two stolen bases since June. His plate skills are likely are, are likewise shaky on shaky ground. Uh, likewise, Victor Reyes in the second half, 274, one home run, one stolen base to 124 at bat. Shaky plate skills. Um, Stewart had actually been perking up a little bit in July. Uh, his batting average and power metrics were improving, but contact's a problem. There just doesn't seem to be that much September upside here in Detroit unless one of these guys starts running wild. They, they all have a little bit of speed. Um, I say all this with the caveat that we have three weeks remaining in the season and anything can happen in that small a time space. The Athletics made an interesting move, Jock. They called up their elite rookie pitcher, A.J. Puck, to make his Major League debut in August. Rather than waiting, he had missed most of the season from a rehab stint after Tommy John surgery last year. Now the A's seem to think he might be able to help them as a relief pitcher, and this might not be the last significant promotion or pitching help the A's are going to get. You covered this story in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, covering the AL West, as I said. What do you think the Oakland pitching staff is going to look like over these final few weeks? Yeah, they began crowdsourcing their pitching staff back in July. They picked up Homer Bailey and Tanner Rourke. They signed Jake Diekman. And uh, then they added Matt Harvey, which I thought was interesting, given, given Harvey's problems here in, uh, in Southern California. This staff looks really deep and unpredictable. And uh, Puck would, would normally be a starter uh, if, if he wasn't coming off of Tommy John surgery. But he'd been striking out more than a batter in inning. They're going to use him in relief. Their bullpen has been very unpredictable. Uh, uh, Blake Trinan has been awful. He's lost his closer job a long time, time ago. Um, Trevino has been has been pretty bad. He's no longer in setup. Uh, um, the roles are going to be fascinating because I think they're going to do a lot of mixing and matching. Um, they have Sean Manaya coming back uh, at some point over the next week. He's been very good in his rehab stints recently. He could take somebody's starting spot. It's interesting. If you go down the playing time page in, in Oakland, they've got a lot of guys who pitch well recently like Mike Fires and, and Chris Bassett. But if you look at their expected ERAs, these guys are due for a, a, a tick downward. It may not happen, but how, how comfortable would you feel with Mike Fires as your ace going into the postseason? I sure wouldn't be. I don't know if uh, if I would be either. I'd certainly rather have Verlander or Cole or somebody of that ilk. But having said that, the A's seem to have figured out a way to do well despite not having that kind of ace-level talent in the rotation over the last few years. And uh, you mentioned Tanner Rourke, uh, who came over uh, a little while ago, and he's had four starts in uh, as, as a member of the Oakland rotation 
and he's actually looked pretty good. He kind of shaky against St. Louis when he first came over in early August, but after that, he's gone six innings every start. He's given up two, two, and three runs. Not great, but not horrendous. Uh, a couple of home runs here, a handful of walks and some hits. He's not great, but he's somehow getting the job done. And I, I think that's what Oakland looks for is somebody who can keep the ball in the park, especially in their big park, and and then they just hope to outbash him, which I don't know is going to be a, a workable solution against Houston. Yeah, no, you're right, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the last five weeks down the stretch, because I think someone's going to have to make room for Sean Manaya, who has, like I said, pitched pitched very well. I'm not sure who it is. I I, I used to think it would be Homer Bailey, and then Homer Bailey goes out and pitches two great games in a row against the Yankees in San Francisco. I think he gave up one run in 13 innings, and he struck out 15 hitters. Um, Brett... uh, Brett Anderson uh, has pitched well for the for the A's all year. His ERA has been around four. But and, and the thing about Anderson is this is like only the second time I think in nine years he's exceeded over a hundred innings. Um, he might be due for a breather. Maybe he's the guy who 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 goes on the DL or takes a step back. But um, they have a lot of arms, and September roster expansion is going. So if we're talking in fantasy terms, it's really difficult to predict uh, who's going to be pitching for the A's. I, I think a lot of guys are going to use innings because they can they can put 40 men uh, on the uh, on the expanded September uh, roster. And I think since they're still fighting for that postseason spot, um, if somebody runs into trouble on, on the mound, they're going to have a lot of arms they can match up in September. So uh, I wouldn't be placing too many bets on on any of these names to pitch a lot uh, over uh, over these final five weeks. On the other hand, they are going to be in what looks like a fairly tough race in that wild card race. If you're going to be in the wild card race, you'd rather be the first wild card than the second. So they have a real incentive to keep pushing and pushing. So that might uh, encourage them to keep their better starters busy if nothing else goes. And I think you're right. Sean Manaya could be a real wild card here. He's looked terrific in the minor leagues in his rehab. Of course, this, the jump from AAA to the big leagues is going to be the big challenge. How do you think that's going to go? Yeah, I mean that your guess is as good as mine, uh, and, and I agree with you. Um, they're gonna they're gonna pitch their, the guys who are pitching best, and if they're and if they're and if they're pitching well at that particular moment, they will leave them in games. Uh, Mike, the, the 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 question I have in my mind is what happens if a guy like Fires uh, um, enters the fifth inning against a good team, and all of a sudden he he loads the bases with nobody out. Uh, um, in a close game, and and they have all these arms. Are they going to take fires out? Uh, it's not something they've done in the past, but they might start doing that now. Yeah, they might. They can't afford to mess around at this point. I think you're right about that. Uh, I'm going to repeat though, Tanner Rorick. Don't don't sleep on Tanner Rorick. He's been really good these four games in Oakland. Uh, I looked him up. Uh, Two sixty three RA in in Oakland, and uh, a whip barely over one. He's struck out twenty three, walked five. So that's a a pretty good start for Tanner Rorick as an A. Uh, finally, a last place club that will be holding auditions throughout these remaining weeks of the season. The Mariners put outfielder Domingo Santana on the IL, and they called up rookie Jake Fraley to make his Major League debut in Santana's roster spot. I'm going to be talking with Todd Zola later about Jake Fraley, but first of all, do you think Santana is done for the year, and what about Fraley? Does he get most of the vacated playing time? You know, all of that looks likely. Santana's had a fine first half, but he's been dealing with elbow inflammation for over a month now, and it's shown up in his second half production. He's only batted 189 since the end of June and 106 at-bats. He's pretty bad in the outfield. He's really primarily a DH. 
and uh, Seattle already has Stan Fogel back there, so it's not like they're missing anything. Um, now Santana's DHness may help him return from this injury and get some September at bats. Uh, but again, he hasn't been particularly productive recently. Seattle isn't playing for anything. So I guess why bother, right? Indeed, you won't get any arguments from me. Uh, what do you think of Fraley? Um, he's not an elite prospect. He, he's got a broad skill set on both sides of the ball, upside of an everyday uh, regular, maybe on a second-tier uh, team. Average skills uh, to above average across the board. He, he runs a little bit. He stole 24 bases between AA and AAA. I think he hit 17 home runs. He can play all three outfield positions. I think he's going to get a lot of playing time. I, um, I don't know what his MLB future is, but he has the upside of an everyday player. And you mentioned that Seattle will be auditioning players looking ahead to 2020. Any other names you think we should be keeping tabs on, or shall I even say daring to roster? Yeah, in fact, Justice Sheffield has been very good since he, he was actually demoted from AAA to AA. Uh, he really struggled early in the season, but he's been very good in AA. Um, he's actually coming up to make uh, a start on Friday, and I think he's going to be sent back down after that. Uh, I think I think Seattle wants that AA club to uh, to have some postseason experience, and I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be up permanently until that happens. Uh, his uh, his rotation made in, in, in AA Arkansas, Justin Dunn, is also going to come up. Uh, he's an interesting name. Um, a couple of DL names that could return that I like uh, in September, if they do return, is, is Austin Adams. I think he has some closer upside. And Shed Long, who's been out and, and forgotten, he has a, a, a fractured finger. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to return in September, but if he does, uh, worth a roster spot just based on playing time alone. All right, Jock, interesting times we live in. I uh, do appreciate you helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, roster forecasting. Baseball HQ analyst Brian Slack looks at the teams of the National League West, including the Colorado closer role, some disappointing news about Fernando Tatis Jr. in San Diego, and the San Francisco rotation. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five National Leaguers, including Marcel Ozuna's Power Speed Package, Orlando Arcia's Power and Surprisingly No Speed Package, and Dakota Hudson's Surprisingly Strong Season. And in the Daily Call-Ups Report, the Baseball HQ Scouting Analysis team looks at recent call-ups, including Houston third baseman Abraham Toro, Texas left-hander Brock Burke, and Oakland left-hander A.J. Puck. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have that player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides columns for hitters, starters, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse column and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. And there's even more. Also, tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and to win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to the show. Nice to be back. This week, your column at The Athletic was titled From Ahmed to Zunino, 10 Undervalued Hitters for 2020. In a general sense, what were you looking for to identify potentially undervalued hitters for next year? Well, mostly guys that haven't been, uh, haven't gotten a lot of publicity, a lot of ink, um, trying to get people to think about guys who they would not normally think about since, since the game seems to be superstar driven. Um, looking for guys who were not superstars and or who were who even scorned somewhat, um, but should have value next year based on improved skills. You started your list with Nick Ahmed uh, of Arizona, and th- this is an interesting thing because I think a lot of why we don't think of the hitters that you found has to do with narrative and reputation. And when we think of Nick Ahmed, if I say his name to, to even a, a sort of involved baseball fan, they're going to say, oh yeah, good glove, not not so good of a bat. And and that's kind of how we just think of Nick Ahmed, but he's uh, got a, a lot of things figured out this year. Gone from being a sub-300 on-base guy to being a pretty decent on-base guy. His OPS is up 150 points or so. He really seems to have figured out things. What did you see in, in Nick Ahmed? Um, hard hit percentages up and the strikeouts are down. I mean, that's a great formula and seems to me to be the sort of thing that's sustainable. You also said you're going to bid $2 next year if someone nominates Heimerich Candelario for a buck. And this is a different situation. Ahmed this year has actually done well, but Candelario's got a 6.15 OPS, something like that. And his batting average the last time I looked was sub-Mendoza line at 198. So where's the appeal in Heimerich Candelario? Well, from a skills standpoint, 39% of his hits in the major leagues have been for extra bases. Um, he strikes out too much, but he doesn't swing and miss more than normal. He's actually a little better than normal, nor does he swing at uh, balls out of the strike zone. He's league average for that. So that tells me that he's taking too many strikes, um, and that's got to be the easiest problem in the world to solve. Um, and when he's got that extra base hit potential, he's a guy that should not fall off people's radars, especially, you know, for a couple of bucks, which is all he's going to cost. Not long ago, a baseball HQ analyst summed up Eric Sogard's 2019 batting average as more fluke than fact, and I agreed with that analysis at the time. But your analysis would have me believe that Sogard's skill set, and I'm quoting here, virtually guarantees a high batting average. What's he doing right? Well, he's got the, his strikeouts are down to 14%. His uh, his swing sweet spot percentage is elite, and his exit velocity is up a little bit. So I think that he's uh, you know he's not going to be a great big star or anything, but I think he's going to be a productive major league hitter at the top of a lineup for a while. I think he's definitely improved. I think he's he's the real deal. You know, and not quite as good as this year, but he's he's a fact, not a fluke. You also said in your Sogard analysis that when the new metrics reinvent the wheel, that's good because it shows that the old baseball wisdom is rooted in reality. What did you mean? Well, I think that any scout who looked at 
Eric Sogard could have told you that this guy was going to be good because of the contact and the, and the strong contact. Um, to me, that's pretty much an unbeatable combination, and, and I, the scouts would have noticed that, and that that's reinforcing of uh, of baseball wisdom, and I think that's good. I think that, uh, you know, the whole war between stats and scouts was always baloney anyway. I mean, ideally, they should merge, and, um, you know, if, if scouts or if stat heads were arrogant or stupid, um, those guys are gone now. I, mean, I think everybody realizes that these things are all tied in together, and it's not one against the other. It's one working with the other. And uh, the title of the piece included Mike Zanino. You described him as an example of a late-blooming catcher. He's been around baseball since 2013. He's 28 years old now. Uh, we know at Baseball HQ we say that catchers develop later as offensive players. A career batting average barely over 200, and his slugging percentage has gone from 842 years ago to, what, 670 or so last year to about 570 this year. Why should we expect that this kind of downward trend will reverse in 2020? Well, first of all, uh, this is an HQ thing, and it goes back 20 years. I think Ed Spaulding of the Houston Chronicle was the first person to document the the late-blooming catcher thing, and I bet it's still in the archives and is well worth reading, uh, because since then, I mean, there have been a couple of dozen catchers who fit that mold, and it it continues to to be true. Zunino is kind of a classic case of that. Um, His problem is very simple. He swings at way too many bad pitches. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to necessarily solve that problem, but it's not a hard problem to solve. And he's got the big power. And, you know, everybody was saying the same things about Jason Castro coming into this year, and look at what he's done. Um, Zunino has more power than Jason Castro. Zunino was a third overall pick in 2012, so he's got the pedigree. Um, so if I'm going to take a chance on a guy with a demonstrated skill and an easily fixed um, flaw, he's just that type of guy. Um, now, you know, I could be wrong. I'm not saying that he's a guarantee, but he's not going to be expensive. And so he's just the sort of guy that, that we should be taking shots with. Yeah, especially at that catcher position. And something that you said just now twigged in my mind, and that was, Swinging at pitchers out of the zone is a problem that can be fixed. And one of the technologies and training methods that they're using that I've been reading about, and it harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, is they're using these virtual reality applications with the mask, and they're basically teaching a guy to recognize pitches, and especially to recognize pitches that are moving off the plate, and teaching and literally teaching him not to swing at those pitches. And I wonder if this is a case where if Zunino knows this, the, that this is his problem and decides he wants to do something about it, you know, five years ago we would have said, well, there's nothing he can do about it except go and, you know, talk to a swing coach or a, a, his own hitting coach on his team, and they try to sort of work their way through it. But with this new technology, there may be a pathway for him to make a huge amount of progress in a very short time, and that's something that, in a case of a guy like Zanino, we need to be looking at. We do, and the other thing about this is this is such a common problem among among hitters that if it is ever conquered on Moss that we could be looking at a real offensive explosion in baseball over the next few years. Now, I'm not predicting that because I think it's harder to do than it is to, uh, 
you know, it's easy to say it, but it's harder to do it. But if the techniques work, we could be looking at something significant in the future. And I think that the listeners should keep it in mind and keep an eye out for for hitters who are who conquer this problem. And the metric to watch there would be uh, the amount of swings outside the zone, contact rates outside the zone, that kind of thing. You can find that at Fangraphs fairly easily. Uh, uh, Baseball Savant has similar sort of things, Brooks Baseball. So this information is available. You have to dig around a little bit to find it. But I think that should be one of the things we're looking for now is the ability to make not incremental gains, but large leaps in the area of of strike zone control, and I'm and by that I mean more than what we currently use, which is a lot of just strikeout percentage and walk percentage and subtract one from the other and those kind of metrics, right down to the point of can this guy resist swinging at balls that are breaking out of the zone, and if he if he makes a big improvement in that, we could see very significant fast improvements in in their performance outcomes absolutely and you were talking about spring training before this is really something to be looking for in spring training um ozone reductions and you know ozone swing percentage um i think that that, that's going to pay off big if um if we pay attention to it i just wonder if the spring training parks are all equipped with the uh you know scanners and laser things and and cameras and stuff that allow that statistic to be monitored and and described i hope so because it would be a real help uh you mentioned Zanino, continuing on about him, having had 25 home runs and a two fifty batting average as recently as 2017. Now, n- not with Zanino in particular, Gene, but with hitters in general, how long do you think we can look backwards at a really productive season that hasn't been repeated before we stop believing in that previous season and start thinking of it as an outlier? Well, um, once you, you know, as Ron Chandler, Ron Chandler says, once you display a skill, you own it. And I understand Ron's point, but I think it should be put that once you display a skill, you have an option to rent it um, because nobody has it forever. And But I think that once a guy has done that, since true fluke seasons are rare, I think that, that you should say that that player has that skill at a diminishing level of cost. You know, the longer he doesn't do what he did, the more his cost should go down. But as long as he's in the major leagues, he should be bid as if that potential still exists. And since we're talking about 2020, Gene, uh, something that's been happening, I don't know why this happened, but I noticed it a couple of weeks ago. I even did it, which is starting to talk about 2020's uh, overall first round top picks. And the the big debate seems to be, do you still take Trout first? Do you look at Yelich or Acuna? And I'm curious, uh, uh, I know that uh, you think about this stuff a lot. So if you were drafting your 2020 team this week, how would you stack up your top few picks in the first round? Well, I mean, pardon me. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking Trout first uh, or Yelich or, or Scherzer. Um, because pitchers still have a bigger effect on the standings than any other players. Um, I'd round out that those with Bellinger, Acuna, and then I have Trevor Story and, and Mookie Betts sort of, sort of the same. So I think that's how I'd rank them. I think that's kind of how, how it will go. Um, I don't think you're going to be very wrong going with any of those guys. 
I wouldn't mind picking eighth there and taking DeGrom, um, which didn't work this year, although it hasn't flopped. I mean, it, it, um, it hasn't really worked, but it should work, and it may work next year. Um, so I kind of, I'm kind of thinking that if I don't get to pick first next year, I'd rather, I'd prefer to pick eighth. I said in my master notes column last week or two weeks ago when I was talking about this, I, I wouldn't mind picking first, second, or third because I would be kind of guaranteed Acuna, Yelich, or Trout, and I'll happily live with those guys. And I might even prefer third because I get a little bit of an edge coming back in a snake draft, uh, picking a little bit before the turn. And uh, But I'll, I'll take any of them. You're right about that. And, of course, the the value curve flattens quite a bit in hitters as soon as you get past that first bunch of really top guys. Uh, even when you're talking about Trevor Story, you're, you're falling off quite a bit, or Nolan Arenado because of the lack of stolen bases. You're falling off quite a bit from the from those five-category guys like Bats and Acuna and, and Christian Yelich and Trout, although Trout's not running as much either lately. So I think if you're if you're in the middle to the end of the first round, You've got a lot more options, but you're not going to get that real super guy who's going to anchor your entire offense, barring injury. Like, I think Yelich, Acuna, and Trout are a cut above the the next little batch, which has Story and Betts, as you mentioned. And then after that, you start getting down into that sort of a whole bunch of guys that you could fit into your roster based on what you think you need. Yeah, I agree. I, I include Bellinger in that group, too. I mean, I think he's absolutely for real. I saw somebody the other day said, well... He's only hit like 270 or something since the All-Star break. Yeah, but he's slugging 600 since the All-Star break. So I, I, there's really no come down, and I think he's 100% legitimate. Yeah. I saw out of this world. Uh, you mentioned that you'd consider Max Scherzer, you'd consider Jacob deGrom. After this season, though, Gene, with the disappointing performances of several ace-level starters, uh, Scherzer has not really been first round because of a back problem. Uh, Chris Sale's been, you know, borderline disastrous, uh, barring a, a few stretches of, of pitching pretty well. Should we be rethinking the theory about targeting starting pitchers in the first round or the second round? Well, I know. I don't think so. I, I mean, they still have that standings impact. You still, if you want to win, you have to have good pitching. Um, it's you have to be right. Um, you can't have the wrong guy," said the owner of Aaron Nola. Um, but I, no, I don't think the principle has changed at all. I think that the, this has just been a, not a particularly great year for that theory. Although there have been plenty of top pitchers who have delivered um it's relative but um i think the theory of getting the great starting pitcher is still sound you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with gene mccaffrey from the athletic and gene you had an earlier pair of columns at the athletic looking at the sweet spot percentage for hitters as recorded by baseball savant from statcast data first what do you mean by the sweet spot it means it doesn't mean barrels, um, which it kind of implies. Um, it means a ball that it, that is hit between eight degrees and thirty-two degrees of launch angle. Um, that's the sweet spot for for batting average and for um, I think so. I'm not, I'm not sure about this yet. Slugging percentage too. 
when I first looked over the top guys on the list, as you reported them, I had to agree with your assessment that it, it was kind of an inconsistent list or a weird list in that it contained, and I quote, the mighty and the apparently miserable and everything in between. I noticed Kurt Casale and Chance Sisko ahead of Bellinger and Trout. I saw Manny Pena behind Jordan Alvarez, uh, right behind him though, and it, it seems kind of random. So why did you think this analysis was worth carrying on given the randomness of the guys on the list? Well, I almost dropped it right then and there when I saw the list. And then I said, I said, wait a minute. And then I ran the numbers and the guys on this list are, are hitting 285. Um, so there's a clear um, relationship between the sweet spot percentage and batting average. Um, and what it does is it makes those, you know, apparently miserable guys not quite so miserable. Um, you know, Kurt Casale is better than you think he is or better than people think he is. I don't know about Francisco. He may go into the tank as the late blooming catchers often do. Um, but Manny Pena going into this year was a 263 lifetime hitter. I mean, that's pretty good at catcher. I mean, for for a guy who's the worst hitter on this list, um, so that's why I pursued it and thought it through a little bit and said, well, you know, it's not super important. It's not something that everybody needs to know, but it's something that I think everyone will benefit from knowing because there is a relationship between batting average and sweet spot percentage. And as you said, to be clear, sweet spot is not a description of the ball hitting the bat at a particular part of the bat, the fat part or whatever you want to call it. And by the way, barrels, the barrel rate is also not a description of that, uh, of an actual physical contact between the bat and the ball. It's a combination of launch angle and, and exit velocity. So don't be confused that they're, they're taking those high-speed cameras and looking to see where the ball contacted the bat. That's not what is meant by either of these things. Before we go on, Gene, we're talking here about Chance Sisko and Kurt Casale and Manny Pena. There was a lot of catchers on this list. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And um, it's funny because on the worst sweet spot percentage, there were also a lot of catchers. Um, but you know, when you look at it, this has been a pretty good year for catchers, especially going in, you know going into this year. Everyone would say, what a wasteland it is. And it certainly appeared that that was the case, but there are a lot of guys who've who've really emerged um, this year and um, and are helping people at, at catcher. And uh, it's not it's far from a wasteland. I know that um, you know Kirk Casale doesn't play that much, uh, but I bet he does next year. You know. The top guy on your list, uh, Reds, call up Josh Van Meter, and you described him as a guy you want for next season. Was that just because of where he appeared on this list, or is there something else? Well, not just because of that. I mean, it's a factor, but he's got major league average strikeouts as a rookie, which I think is always impressive. His uh, hard hit rate is very good, and his exit velocity was very good. So I think he's a guy who's going to hit in the majors, and just the sort of guy who... Um, He's got some speed, too, but he's just the sort of guy that should show a, a decent uptick in power. Well, you did say about sweet spot percentage that it looks like an indicator for future power. Uh, how did you reach that conclusion, and how far into the future do we have to wait? Well, I'm not sure about that. I just threw it out because it looks like a possibility based on the list, which contained a few guys who no one ever thought were going to hit for power. Jorge Polanco. Um, 
going back, Yadier Molina, even Neil Walker, you know, was a guy who showed power in the major leagues and no one ever expected it. The day after I did the list, Donovan Solano, of all people, who's high on the list, hit two home runs. Um, there is something there, I think, um, but I don't know yet. There's not enough. There's not enough evidence, but the, the evidence that exists suggests that the sweet spots per- percentage may be related to future power. So it's just something to keep an eye on. Gene, you mentioned the bottom of the list, a lot of catchers there, but uh, basically it looked like a lot of guys we'd expect to be on the bottom of a list like this. But curiously, Matt Chapman of the Athletics, a really good hitter, has a reputation that way and certainly has had the production of being a really good hitter. What's the story with a guy like him amongst all these not-so-good hitters as far as sweet spot goes? I think it's kind of a fluke, but it's driven by the fact that he's a fly ball hitter. And so with launch angle here, he's he's got a lot of balls in play that are over 32 degrees. Um, when when you see a thing like that, you, you should go and look at his, the rest of his story. He's also got a low line drive rate. His career line drive rate is like 17.4%, which is low. Um, but then again, his exit velocity and hard hit rates are are way high enough so that I would not I would not consider this a flaw in his case. It's just one of those things, one of those, you know, statistically anomalous things that really don't mean anything. Well, talking of exit velocity, in the next week's column at The Athletic, you revisited the sweet spot idea, but you combined it with exit velocity. And again, the exit velocity and and launch angle combination is sometimes referred to as barrels, but you weren't talking about barrels. You were looking at... Uh, a list of guys who are in the top 75 of both. What did you find out? Well, uh, first of all, exit velo means more than sweet spot percentage. But it seems to me that there's a real correlation there between good hitting and those two things, the combination of them. And um, to anticipate you, bat speed. Um, so what I'm looking to do, and I'm interested um, in math guys there, who are who are listening because they may have they will have some suggestions is coming up with a formula that includes sweet spot percentage exit velocity or hard hit rate that could apply to and bat speed and see if we can come up with um, some sort of new expected ba or even expected slugging percentage out of that and maybe maybe find a, a, a projecting breakthrough that seems to have eluded us over the last several years. Well, you did discuss bat speed in the article. It has both positive and negative uh, connections. What did you find in the interaction of swing speed with the other metrics, and where did you find the swing speed, bat, uh, the bat speed metrics in the first place? I can't find them anywhere. Um, there was an article that I referenced in the article that showed, it only showed the top 25 bat speeds and the bottom 25 bat speeds, Um but it should be linked in the article um, to that. And, and as I say, I'm looking for a blend of all those things and to see if we can come up with something that tells us something new and pops out some, you know, some interesting players. Well, you looked up the hitters who had shown the greatest increases and decreases in sweet spot percentage. Uh, finally, on this topic, who did you find uh, among the big increasers and decreasers, and how do you think we should play such players looking ahead? 
um, I think we should add or subtract a little bit to them. Interestingly enough, our boy uh, Kurt Casali was on that list. Um, at the top of the list was Austin Slater, which is not what I expected to see, and I really hate hitters in the San Francisco Giants because of the ballpark, but I mean, this guy's got something going for him. Um, he hasn't gotten much of a chance. Um, there's probably a fair chance that he gets traded, um, and anywhere he gets traded is going to be a better place to hit. So I'd put him on the radar for next year. The other guys, the other thing is the guys who showed badly on this, uh, predominantly Andrelton Simmons, um, whose batting average is his thing, and when people get him, that's what they're you know relying on. Now this could be injury driven because um, he's been hurt this year, but he had a big drop-off. And another guy on that list is Wilson Ramos, whose um, lifetime OPS, I believe, has just sunk below its career level, and I think that's a concern at age 32, and he's going to go pretty high among catchers next year. So he might be a guy to, uh, to knock down a few, pardon me, a few pegs. You know, Austin Slater's an interesting guy. In 2017, his line drive rate was about 14%, which is way below average. He's almost doubled it. He's up around 27% this year. And I wonder maybe if we were able to dig into what he's been doing in the offseason, I wonder if he's been taking advantage of some kind of training methods or or vision training methods to try to figure out how to get more bat speed, which is just basically getting your body to, to generate enough force. And, and maybe he just wasn't doing enough things right, and now he's doing enough things right. I think that could be a real interesting detective story to look up a guy like that, that who has had such a huge increase yeah i agree i mean you couldn't i mean i i would never accuse anybody of doing this too but you know he may have become more manly as uh um if you know what i mean i do know what you mean as i say i'm not i am not 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 saying that he did that but i am saying that the all the incentive to major league players now is to take peds i mean if you get caught, you, you eat an 80-game suspension. Um, but all the evidence shows that the effects of PEDs last and last and last. I mean, we've got 15 years of research to show this. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, so you take the suspension if you get caught, um, 80 games. So what? Um, you know, it's like a you know, it's an injury. Um, there's no shame in it. Nobody's being shamed because of it. Um, I don't see what the downside is. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we, so, if the guy goes to driveline baseball and takes PEDs, wow, yeah, you know, we may have to, you know, we may have to replace him for eighty games, but for those for the rest of the time, he's going to be good. The one thing I'll say in his favor on that regard is he's also doubled his walk rate, and that seems to me to indicate uh, that he's you can't PED your way to a to a uh, a walk rate increase. It just means that he's right. Being better at that no, I aspect not, of the game. You know, as I say, I am not saying that. I, I would not dream of accusing any individual of doing that. But, yes, and there are natural explanations. So more power to him. And watch for him to be traded. And maybe more power to him as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Uh, a little further back, Gene, you had a column called Another Dive into the Validity of Streaks and the Perils of Dumping Batting Average. Uh, let's start with the validity of streaks. What did you mean by validity in this context? Well, that they stand up, that that they hold up, and they do. 
um, at least in the short term. Um, I know that you did research doing it, and what you admitted when you did it was that the problem is defining a streak. And what I did was I just said, okay, here's a guy who hit a home run in this game. Um, that, to me, qualifies as hot. What did he do in the next game, and the game after that, and, and on? And the fact is that I've and I've done this twice this year. The fact is that the guys who hit home runs have slugging percentages over 500 in the next several games. Um, in the second game back, um, they've their slugging averages over 600. Um, so when you see a guy, and I, the reason I did this is for DFS. Um, uh, and it works. Um, you can do it. Yeah, that second game, I don't know why, uh, but I do know that. And then for the third, fourth game, you know, up to the tenth game, the slugging percentages are all between 452 and 590. So, yeah, these guys who hit home runs in one game are definitely hot hitters, and it holds up until, into the next several games. So I think it's real. Yeah, you referred to that research report I did. I just looked at home runs as predictors of further home runs. I never did uh, slugging percentage, which seems to be a bit fairer of an assessment. And uh, I'm interested in that. Uh, I spoke about the idea of ta- of streaks with Chris Liss a month or two ago here on Baseball HQ Radio, and we agreed on two things. There are such things as streaks. And there's no way to predict the next one or even the end of the one that you're in or when the streak is going to turn to a, to a bust. What is your thinking about the application of streaks as far as analyzing players? Well, for DFS, I think it's you can ride the streak. If you see a streak, ride it until it peters out. Um, you're not gonna, it's like the stock market. You don't have to get in at the bottom and out at the very top. But if you catch a nice sweet spot in the middle there, so to speak, um, there's there's an advantage to doing that. Um, I don't know how. I don't know if I could get any more specific than that. Uh, but I think that once a, a hitter has shown something, um, I would I'm inclined to take him the next day, and especially the day after that, in combination with the other circumstances that you you know always use when you're when you're picking hitters for DFS. And you had a comment about a growing expert trend in draft strategy, which is dumping batting average to chase power and the other uh, hitting counting stats. And your view is that it can't work. Uh, what What is the problem with dumping batting average? Well, I mean, my idea is that it can't be done. Um, there's a uh, also, and then general, as a general philosophical thing, I think it's great when somebody else at the table doesn't value something that has value. Um, it makes it easier for everybody else. But the fact of the matter is is that if you try to dump power, uh, if you try to dump batting average, there's no guarantee that you're going to win the power categories, uh, which is presumably the reason why you're doing that. Um, most of the power hitters these days uh, hit for good average. Not all of them, of course, but they're hard to avoid. Um, put it this way, there, uh, right now there are 57 hitters who are hitting 280 or better and they're averaging 21 home runs. So it's really hard to avoid these guys. And the same thing is true with speed. I mean, the, the 25 guys who've stolen 15 or more bases are hitting 275. Um, so, A, I don't think it can be done, and, and B, I don't think you really gain anything. Any difference in OBP leagues? 
A little bit because, um, you know, the walk factor is more consistent than the batting average factor. But still, batting average makes up the, the majority of, of the OBP stat. Um, so I would say no, I don't think it makes a difference. And you did say in the column, Gene, you're willing to dump, or what you called half-dump, saves at the auction. Why the difference? Well, because saves are, you know, they've always been incredibly luck-driven. And now, with teams using multiple closers, um, I think what you when I say half-dump, I mean get one secure, unquote, closer, and then play around with it if you can't get two. Um, I don't like, I never like to dump anything at the table, but the saves are so fungible that it's, it, to me, it makes more sense to, to, you know, get a guy who's reasonably secure. And then because so many pitchers are capable of getting the saves, once they've been given the job, play around and see if you can pick up one or two guys. Uh, even You don't even need a, a, a regular guy. I mean, you can almost do it these days by getting a guy here for three saves and a guy here for seven saves. And, you know, as long as you do them consecutively and you're not, it's hard to do, uh, but everybody's in the same boat. So I, I, fewer saves are necessary, and therefore it makes more sense to me to play around a little bit, if necessary. The other aspect of of saves that I've always thought of in uh, especially in the last few years in fantasy baseball is it used to be that if you got the good closers, you were also getting good decimals. They all, they all, they almost went entirely hand in hand, and I don't think that's as true anymore. I I have lots of guys who are. Uh, um, on my roster who are getting some saves for me and I'm glad to have them. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, a lot of them are, you know, four, four, one, four, two ERAs, one thirty-five whips, and they're getting the saves because they have the role. So in a way, dumping saves is not the same as batting, batting average, as you suggested earlier, because batting average is intimately connected with a whole bunch of other stuff in a way that saves are not saves are really isolated from all of the other contributions that a pitcher can make, especially in ERA and ratio, because a, some of them aren't that good at it. And B, because uh, frankly, some of them are just unskilled and C, because they don't throw enough innings to really affect the ratios that much. If you've got 1400 innings uh, as a team. Right. And you don't have to be that good to hold the two red lane. Yeah, I was just looking at the uh, at the saves list, and in the top ten or, or so, there's a 3.86 ERA. Razel Iglesias, Ken, Kenley Jansen at 3.70, uh, Edwin Diaz 5.32. You know, the 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 fact is, you can get saves and still hurt your team, which might be another reason to to think of saves differently than we think of every other category. Even uh, stolen bases have a connection to runs and to to batting average, as you suggested. Yeah, and. And, you know, 3.86 ERA is not that bad this year. Um, in fact, it's not really bad at all. Um, so that's where there's a relative factor to that, too. They're yes. giving up home runs also. And it's, but it's not helping you as much as it did 
five years ago when all the closers were getting two 20 ERAs and dragging your decimals down, uh, in, in, at least in some help. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, as you know, during the season I like to ask our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners down the stretch. Who's an American League hitter you think could be a boon? Well, the obvious guy is Aaron Judge, but I won't go with him. I mean, he's just way too good to have as few home runs as he does. Um, but I'm going to go with Jonathan VR because he's going to get tons of plate appearances. He's going to see tons of fastballs because his team is always going to be losing 8-1. to one. Um, Teams won't care if he steals bases, and he's, he's got surprising power. Um, so I think he's going to be a real asset for... Uh, running wild and popping some home runs uh, for the rest of the season. I have Jonathan VR on uh, two out of my three teams and uh, uh, maybe three of my, I can't even remember now. Uh, Jonathan VR has been a real success story this year, I think, uh, for people who believed in him enough to to appreciate that stolen base and home run combination. As for Aaron Judge, Gene, do you think, remember at the start of the year, and I've talked about this on the show before, but I'm curious what you think. At the start of the year, Aaron Judge went on the I.L., with an oblique problem. And since he's come back, he just hasn't been hitting home runs. And I wonder, do you think that the oblique injury has somehow lingered and he came back to be a good, you know, industry soldier, a a team guy, and maybe that that oblique is still contributing to the inability to torque his body enough? He's not pulling. He hasn't pulled a home run this year, as far as I know. Everything's to the opposite field, which is shoulders and hands and arms. But he doesn't seem to be getting that same drive from his uh, hips and torso. Do you think the oblique could still be a problem? Maybe, but he's still at the top of the hard hit percentage, and you know, in the top of the exit velocity. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with him and um, think that he's got a bunch of home runs to the pull side that are coming. Yeah, I know that is an interesting and somewhat alarming fact, but I think that it, it almost has to turn around. I think. Plus injuries heal if it is an injury problem. You know. I wonder. I wonder if oblique injuries heal when you're constantly twisting your body. You know, because that's what you do for a living. Uh, who's a National League hitter for you? Who's a boon? Uh, Bryce Harper. I mean, he's hot now, uh, but he's had this hot streak coming, and I think it's going to continue. And he's just too good, I think. Um, and he's just the type of hitter who has these long very productive streaks um, coming out of long slumps. And so if if he follows the form, this will continue at least through the end of this year and probably into next year too. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon? Well, I think the pickings are kind of slim here, but I would say this. If you're in a position where you need to take a gamble to win, and I might add, that there is a lot of ground to be made up in pitching. You can, I mean, when I look at the standings in the leagues I'm in, especially leagues with overall components, there are an enormous number of points to be had in WHIP and ERA. And if you're in a position where you need to gamble, um, you could take advantage of that. And I think that the best guy to do that with is Eduardo Rodriguez, who's a guy who has always had everything that he needs except he need, except control can be shaky, and but if I needed to take a gamble on somebody to make up some points, he's he's 
a really good guy to do it with. And in the National League, a Boone pitcher? Uh, my favorite, Aaron Nola. I mean, as bad as he was early on, he has turned it around. He looked really sharp lately. Um, and I think he's going to continue. And by the way, I think the Phillies are going to make a little run. Um, it's almost If they do what I think, if Harper and Nola do what I think they're going to do, they almost have to be um, contenders almost to the very end. Yeah, Aaron Nola has looked really good of late, uh, that's for sure. Uh, Gene McCaffrey's Boons, Jonathan Villar of Baltimore, Bryce Harper of Washington, Eduardo Rodriguez of Boston, Aaron Nola of Philadelphia. Let's move over to your Baines, Gene. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the season. Again, let's start in the American League, and again, let's start with a hitter. Who's a Bane hitter in the American? Well, I hope it's just till the end of this year, but Oscar Mercado, I, I just traded for him in the XFL, um, I think he's got a nice long-term future, but he's suffering once around the league syndrome, and he hasn't made that readjustment yet. So I expect him to, uh, he may even lose some playing time down the stretch. Um, but he's a good player, but I think he uh, started hot, and now he's in the, the down phase of until he can readjust. And he's been losing playing time of late to Greg Allen. I have Oscar Mercado on my tout team, and I watch Cleveland uh, play regularly, and uh, he's sitting a lot more than I remember. For a while, he was playing uh, really regular to the extent that they actually sent Greg Allen to the minors. Greg Allen is back. Greg Allen is playing, and Oscar Mercado's uh, pinch hitting a lot and pinch running. Who's a National League hitter who could be a bane? I'm really worried about Daniel Murphy. His hard hit percentage is down two years in a row and his strikeouts are up. Um, he always seems to be hurt, um, has not really taken advantage of Coors Field, and I think these are all um, alarming warning signs. I would stay away from him. Back to the mound, an American League pitcher who could be a bane? I don't have one pitcher. I have all the starting pitchers on the Yankees. Um, because of this home run thing, I mean, I just... In that ballpark, I don't see how you can avoid it. I mean, everybody knows now right-handed hitters can pop them out to the opposite field. Left-handed hitters can, you know, hit a cheap little shot that's off the wall or is an out in other places, and it's a three-run homer there. And I think it hurts every single one of their starting pitchers, and I'm, I don't want any part of any of them. Even if they're good, and they are pretty good, um, they're just not going to live up to their ability with that handicap against them. And finally, Gene, a National League pitcher who's a bane. Also the home run problem, um, you Darvish. Um, unfortunately, I have him in Tower Wars, and he just killed me. I mean, he looks great. You know, you, you, he's striking out guys. That's not a problem. Uh, but, you know, it, it seems that in every game, he lays two or three pitches right down the middle, and they know what to do with them, and they just boom them, and the hell with them. Sorry, Yoke. Gene McCaffrey's Baines, Oscar Mercado of Cleveland, Daniel Murphy of Colorado, the entire Yankee rotation, and you Darvish of the Cubs. Uh, Gene, this has been great. Tell our listeners where they can read more from Gene McCaffrey. Every Tuesday at theathletic.com. There I am. And feel free to contribute and ask questions and challenge and let's um, advance our knowledge. Well, Gene, this has been uh, tremendous. Uh, I really enjoy talking with you. As you know, will I be seeing you at Phoenix uh, at first pitch? 
you will. I am booked, and I'm really looking forward to it. And also to any listeners, uh, please, if I don't know you, um, approach me and let's have some beers and um, talk some baseball. Right, Gene. Thanks a million. Thank you, Patrick. Always a pleasure. Gene McCaffrey writes for The Athletic. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shao kicks and he fires. Rose Swain. There it is! There it is! Get out! Get out! Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. In your latest Z-Files at Rotowire, your column is about uh, some prospects who are coming up and could have an impact on the stretch run, not so much in real baseball, but definitely the possibility is there that uh, they can help out in fantasy baseball as you come down the stretch. I'd like to talk to you about a few of these guys, but first, what made you think of this topic? Well, it's just it's something to, it's something important now at, at this point of the season. You need all the help you can get. The trade deadline has passed. There have been a couple of players, uh, Billy Hamilton and Jonathan LeCroy, probably the biggest name brands that have been released and then signed by teams. This is the, the new waiver trade. You know, there won't be a Justin Verlander moving on the final hours at August 31st, but there are so there will be some lesser known, not lesser known, but lesser talented players changing teams via uh, via release and waiver pickup. But there's also been some call-ups, and I don't know if I'm going to say there's been more call-ups than in other seasons. It, it seems like it is, or maybe we're just more in tune with it. But there's uh, there's been some call-ups, and now you guys cover them on your site and in the in the podcast, but um, you know, everybody has their own interesting take, especially because at this point, there's a lot of speculation involved. Yeah, and sometimes that's what it takes in a tight uh, uh, fantasy league that you could be playing in, because most of the good players, as we know, are going to be spoken for. In most leagues, they'll either be rostered, they'll be on reserve lists, they could be on right. uh, disabled lists of one kind or another. So the the pools are getting pretty thin at this time of year, so it's good to see some new players coming in. And, of course, the question that arises immediately is playing time. But let's talk about some of these guys. Uh, one of the first guys that caught my eye was Jake Fraley, the outfielder in mm-hmm. Seattle. Yeah, now he he's he's he didn't so much come out of nowhere. He is he was pretty highly rated on a lot of prospect lists, and I think we've been kind of waiting for him to come up. But Seattle has been looking at some other players. They just recently picked up picked up Keon Broxton as a freebie just to give a look at, and and Malik Smith has been there all season. But with Mitch Haniger out and Domingo Santana out, there's been an opening, and and they brought up Fraley who. You know, looks to be like the across-the-board type contributor, but probably more speed than power. So I think there's a couple guys in here that eventually, you know, we'll be talking about pick him up for speed without sacrificing too much power. His his plate skills are pretty decent, and I actually I found that as sort of a, a common theme among this group that was picked up. I was impressed by 
the majority of them had had reasonable plate skills. Actually, Freely's walk rate isn't as impressive or hasn't been as impressive as some of the other players. But, you know, back in the day, that's what we looked at, walking strikeouts, and that's what we went by. Now it's all about home runs. But it was sort of refreshing to be able to say that four or five or six of these young players are exhibiting good plate uh, good plate skills, uh, contact, and, and good uh, some patience down in the minors. Yeah, he, he, his walk rate's a little low for my liking. He's under 10% yeah. this year at AA and AAA. But strikeout rate is only around 20%, which is really good because it indicates that a guy who's uh, who's capable of making contact rather than swinging and missing, and that's a huge difference. Now, uh, you mentioned Mitch Haniger. They still say he's supposed to be back in September, at which point uh, that's going to cause some movement, you would think, with the Mariners. Or is there a chance that they just say, hey, Mitch – Take it easy, you know. Uh, we'll just uh, we'll just leave you be for the rest of the year and get 100% healthy for 2020. I think I think there is, and I think I think you know what I think there's more of a chance that they do that with Domingo Santana than they do that with Hanniger. Hanniger had a pretty pretty cruddy start to the season before he got hurt, so you know it's 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 narrative, it's anecdotal, but it wouldn't shock me. If they'd like to get him in there and you know get, end the season on a high note, because he's an important cog. He's a to me he, he's a particularly good player. So, uh, but you're right though they may just want to sit him down and, and just off season to to, to to get back in gear and, and, and start again next year. But um, there's still a couple other openings where or, or or pathways to playing time. They got Tim Lopes and Dylan Moore in left field. I don't think either of them are part of their future. The Mariners. And right now, I'm sure you've talked about him, Austin Nola, con- not so much converted catcher, but former shortstop, caught a lot of the minors. He's just been crushing it, playing mostly first base. But he's close. To, I think he, if he's not 30, he, if he's not over 30, he's 30 years old. So while he's a nice part, he's not part of the future. So if Nola cools down any, that uh, there's there's another opening because Daniel Vogelbach can move back to first base. So there's definitely pathways to playing time. So, you know, that's part of it. If you take a look at Fraley's skills and you say, well, he doesn't strike out much, you know, he, he could he could have a good five or six weeks. But I, I think if he if not, might not be there right away I, or not obvious, I think they're going to play him, at least in a platoon. So, to me, he's a guy where, you know, you look at both skills and you look at opportunity. I think Fraley is going to have the opportunity. Some other players uh, that we may talk about, the, the opportunity may not be as obvious or or, or or may not, you know, something weird, really weird would have to happen. Another guy you looked at uh, was Nick Solak, who's got called up by the Texas Rangers, nominally a second baseman. But when I saw his name on the list, my first thought was that I know Rugnet Odor's having a tough year, but they're not giving up on him. So where does Nick Solak fit in as far as getting playing time in Texas? Yeah, now here, here's, uh, you know, per- perfect segue. Uh, yeah, Solak is one of the players where, where it's not it's not clear because exactly as you suggested, um, Odor is having a down year, but he's still too young and he, he too much promise to just completely bag. I can see him sitting down and and giving Solak some time. So where does Solak play? Well, he came from he came from the Tampa, Tampa Bay Rays, and you know how they love the multiple positions. He's played some outfield in the minors. So you could always play him in the outfield. Texas, uh, Texas can always play him in the outfield. And they're, they, being the Rangers, have got some injuries. 
with Joey Gallo and, and Delano DeShields and, and who knows how long Hunter, Hunter Pence, you know, before his next injury. Uh, Danny Santana is currently battling uh, a sore hamstring. Noma Mazzara is out. I think I meant to say, uh, I think I said DeShields. I meant Mazzara. DeShields is, 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 is playing. So there's some there's some potential play in the uh, in the in the outfield, but here's where I said you know kind of weird things could happen. Right now, Texas is using future Hall of Famer Logan Forsythe as their third baseman. You know, I mean, it, he's doing a fine job. He's filling in. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But I have I have this feeling Solak uh, Solak could 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 potentially play there, and that might be the pathway to playing time for for Nick Solak. Kind of a, a, a Fill in, fill in over third base. Give him a, give him a shot over there. So he played a couple games over the course of his minor league career. It, but he hasn't done it regularly. But it's there. I'm more comfortable with Fraley's playing time. But I can see, I can see Solak playing a, a lot of the next five or six weeks. I remember Nick Solak from a year or two ago when he was still in the Rays organization as a potential sort of top of the order stolen base run guy. I think yeah. he had 20 stolen bases in the Rays AA organization a year or two ago. And this year, I think five across two organizations. Has he stopped running? Has the organization stopped running? Is he a, a potential source of steals at all? Yeah, that's that's the that's that's the that's the key, especially down the stretch where. Either you're you're looking to fill a category need, steals, power, whatever it might be, even batting average, and that would be the obvious one. But you're right; it's like he's five for seven. Don't know. I do not know if if it's an organizational thing, if it's an injury thing, or, or what it might be. Something I like to do, and I know you, Baseball uh, HQ, does this as well in some of their metrics. I like to look at the triples because sometimes triples can uh, can be a measure of pure speed. And he was never, I mean, he never had a bunch of triples, but they don't, they seem in proportion to previous seasons. So I don't know that he's, for whatever reason, lost a step. He's 24 years old. He should be gaining a step. So not exactly sure. But that that's that's sort of the the uh, the asterisk with Solak is you're, you're hedging playing time and you're not exactly sure where he is going to contribute although talking about plate discipline he does have the walk rate that uh at least he he, he over 10 percent usually at the second the second year at the level he as typically goes most players take a little adjust and he, he kind of did it perfectly in that the first year at a level it was under 10 percent the second year it was you know over 10 over 11 so that's he may struggle at the beginning with walks, but hopefully he'll eventually translate some of that uh, patience to the major leagues. And and as as well, youngsters, he's been striking out a lot when he came first when he first came, now when he's first coming up. So he was given some chances, Solak, to play for Odor, didn't really take advantage. So now the you know the next question is, does Texas want to look at him? Do they want to take a look at him for next year, or was he just called up to get a look and? just to give Odor some time on the bench to just kind of get his head straight. One thing I noticed about uh, Solak in the minor leagues was when he was in the Rays organization, he walked a lot, I think 11 or 12% of yeah. the time. And after he moved to the uh, 
to the Texas organization, all of a sudden that fell down to about 5%, but his strikeouts fell at the same time. So I wonder if that's just a matter of, you know, you get to a new organization, the coaches have different priorities. They want you to focus on different things. Uh, speaking of third baseman, you talked about future Hall of Famer Logan Forsythe. Uh, in San Diego, uh, they called up Ty France uh, about a week ago or so, and he had played earlier this year in San Diego, didn't do particularly well, batting average around 220, had a couple of home runs in 123 plate appearances so he wasn't putting the world on fire and they sent him back to the minors and he really changed things around he was smoking in the minors yeah now uh, i mean he was he's one hit away from 400 in the minor leagues you know he's probably probably not going to get it i don't think they'll send him down to get it maybe they will i don't know but he was crushing in the minors he had a 770 slug which that could be another player's ops so whether he's, he's 24 years old, it's a little early to label him the proverbial quad A player, but there's just been a huge disconnect what he's been able to do in AAA El Paso. And I know it's a good hitting environment in up with the Padres, which obviously isn't as good of a hitting environment. But um, yeah, he, he was called up out of necessity with Fernando Tatis, unfortunately hitting the, uh, the injured list for the rest of the season, it seems like. But, you know, it was warranted. The numbers were warranted. So he's a more of a power guy. I think of the list, if, you, if you're if you trying to find those that, that extra punch, that, that those extra few homers, at least the players that I profiled, the recent call-ups, France profiles as the one that can most most likely give it to you. But he also has some issues with with contact. So, you know, th- there's a risk. But it's, it's one of those things... Um, you know, you're, you're, you're a hockey guy. I have, you know, it's, I, it, it, the, the analogy may be poor, but, it, or maybe perfect. I'm not sure. But, um, when you pull the goalie, it increases your chances of both winning and losing. So in, 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 in fantasy, taking a shot at a player like France increases your chances of both winning and losing. So it, it's that stay in the middle. It's the, it's that tie game. It's that do nothing, uh, area that decreases. So, you know, you say, well, if you're increasing your chances of losing, isn't it also decreasing the chances of winning? But, in, in a, you know, it's, it's you're not going to win anyway, so uh, if you don't make the move, so get yourself some Thai France and hope he gets hot and, and hits you five homers. An interesting AAA line, to be sure. Over the last couple of years, he's, yeah. he's had a, a goodly number of home runs in the minor leagues as well. 27 last year, I think 22, something like that, across levels the year before. So this guy can hit. I guess the question is going to be, can he translate uh, AAA to the majors, which, as we all know, is the biggest jump you can make as a rising prospect. Yeah. Uh, it's been a good year for catchers, Todd. We've talked about this before, especially in the American League. And now there's a guy, Dom Nunez, has come into Colorado as a call-up, maybe to get some catching there. Should we be interested? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, anything in Colorado, but, you know, we you know we could go on and on about failed uh, Rockies catchers that have, uh, you know, not taken advantage. Although right now I think Tom Murphy's crushing it and uh, – in, in Seattle, which is, uh, which is odd, but, um, you know, leave Colorado, go to, go to Safeco and suddenly find your power stroke. But yeah, anything Colorado, at least you have to be interested. It's, uh, Nunez, the, he's going to be now backing up. They, they, Rockies released, uh, Chris Iannetta. Uh, the interesting, well, not so much interesting, 
But the catch is both Tony Walters, the, the, the number one catcher in Colorado, and Nunez are both lefty swingers. So there's not a natural platoon, obviously. So I don't, you know, at this point, which 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 guy they'll put in against Southpaws, which gets to face, you know, Clayton Kershaw, et cetera. But um, assuming they they use Nunez and give him the best chance to succeed, he's got some power and he's got the backup job. So I don't think you, I don't think you're going to want him in a mixed league. But if you're one of the, you know, an NL only, if you've been struggling with your second catcher. You may be able to catch lightning in a bottle, and this is this is where you, you, there's not many positions you can upgrade. So it's kind of nice if if you get a late season push from your catcher. Now he's been up a little while. I don't we don't know if he'd be. I think he, he may not be available in you know in NL only. He probably was picked up when he first came up, but he, for whatever reason, if he's not, you know, Colorado has a favorable schedule in, in that they play more home games than away games the rest of the year. Don't know exactly when he's going to play, but why not? He's he's not going to be worse than your second catcher. One thing that jumped out at me, Todd, about uh, this Dom Nunez is if you go back a few years and look at his OPS numbers starting in 2016 at high A, you're looking at 682. Then the next year he's up in double A, 689. Then the year after that he repeats double yeah. A, 663. Then he gets to triple A, 921. So a 260-point increase in, 255-point uh, increase in OPS in one year despite increasing a level. And I'm wondering how we should look at that and take it. It could be the result of coaching, could be the result of, you know, technology and vision training and all that kind of stuff that I've been talking about with Gene McCaffrey. And mm-hmm. it could just be fluke. How do we assess something that gigantic of a jump when a guy makes it, uh, especially while he's crossing up a level in the minor leagues? Yeah, catching is interesting. You know, then you, you need to introduce the fact that he's a catcher, and a lot of catchers focus on their defense early, and the hitting takes a while to come around. Now he's only only 24. I'm, I'm looking at you know some of these numbers, and the you know my eyes go to age versus level, age versus level, and he's pretty much been on par as far as that goes. So you you can't really say that the jump. I mean, the jump came. This year at Albuquerque, I mean, early in the year, he started out started out in, in high A ball, but I'm not sure if that was injury, only one game, so it may be an injury thing. But the uh, 24 years old at AAA, that's, this, I guess now when the kids are 20 and 21 coming up, maybe that's old, so maybe it has something to do with age versus level. But, and the old, you know, 24 in AAA shouldn't be that alarming. I don't think you need to penalize it that much, so... I don't, unfortunately, I just, I'm, at this point, I just number scout, and I rely on people that are at games and, 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 and focus more in the minor leaguers to tell me why. That's something that I'm going to need to do some more research in the offseason, because if if Brown is going, I'm sorry, Nunez uh, is going to be the backup catcher, maybe, you know, it's Tony Walters, maybe he's even the regular catcher for Colorado. We're going to have to look into that a little bit more uh, to, to, to sort of, figure out what to expect for next season. And we've been talking entirely about hitters in your column, the uh, Z-Files column at 
Rotowire, you have a couple of pitchers that you mentioned, kind of in a bunch. Uh, John Duplantier in Arizona, A.J. Puck in Oakland, and Hunter Harvey in Baltimore. Is there commonalities here? Why did you lump them together, except for space? Yeah, I lumped them together because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't worth doing them individually. Um, I, I just, I, and I was, I kind of knew that when I, when I started, but you, you look at the word count and you look to 1600 words, you say, you know what, it's a, let's just lump these guys together. Now, Duplantier, to be fair, has been sent back down to the farm, but he'll probably be back up. I still think the Diamondbacks have intentions of using him as a starter, but the, with a lot of injuries going on this year, they just they just haven't had a chance to stretch him out, and when he was needed in the major leagues, it was as a reliever. So I think they just don't want to uh, threaten for further injury. But I do think they want to use him as a as a starter. He to me he has the least potential of helping out a fantasy team this year. You know, even in the holds and saves department, AJ Puck uh, is going to be a starter for for the Athletics, but they are. Uh, just coming off TGS, they are using him strictly out of the bullpen. And his first game back, he's got a hold in the eighth inning, which uh, to me, you know, says that if you're in a holds league, look for A.J. Puck because they are going to use him in the high leverage scenarios. Hunter Harvey, as we know, you know, former, I don't know if it's a like top prospect, but highly regarded pitching prospect. Man, in, you know, injuries have hopefully derailed and not, I'm sorry, hopefully curtailed and not derailed his career. But he's coming up in the bullpen. And if you're, you know, you're speculating, y'all, you know, at this point, we're just speculating for saves. Baltimore's probably not going to get many, but their bullpen is pretty lousy. It wouldn't be shocking to see Harvey in that role. And it also wouldn't be shocking if that's his eventual role with, you know, with all the injuries. You know, as we talk about, sometimes converting a starter to reliever to keep him healthy, depending upon the injuries, isn't the best thing because now you're up every day. You're getting hot every other day. Uh, you know, it, it, some people with the injuries need the rest in between. So it depends upon the the type of injury. It's just it's not a no. You know, that's the next step. Make him a reliever. But his repertoire with you know fireballer with two pitches could be could be a back end guy. So maybe maybe Baltimore opts to to take a look now in a mixed league. You know, it's if he gets three saves, is that going to help? Probably not. But depending upon where you are, um, sometimes, you know, we, when we talk trade, we've talked trade a couple times and, and when, when we've been in similar leagues, sometimes you don't need one closer. Sometimes you need two to make the move. So trading for, you know, Felipe Vasquez or, or whatever it might be doesn't get you what you need. You still needed three or four more saves. Well, that may be where Harvey comes in a, into, into play. Is is you know, he's not gonna he's not gonna make the move by himself, but maybe he's that little bit of a push you need to to make your to make the first trade worthwhile. Otherwise, you know you go from gaining two points to five points with a, with another couple of three saves. So I think that's more of his role than it is you know I, I need I need saves. I'm gonna bid on Hunter Harvey. Todd, when I one quick question uh, when we look at uh... Hunter Harvey's minor league track record over the last few years. Something that jumps out is he's got xFIPs uh, around the 360, 370, 380 mark in in a couple of consecutive years, and his actual ERA is consistently a run and a half higher. And uh, even this year, his uh, xFIP in the minor leagues 384. He's at 432, so he's bringing it down. But when you see a pitcher, especially in the minor leagues, who seems to be under pitching his skills, 
What kind of conclusions do you draw about that? Or what do you look at and say, this is something I have to keep an eye on? What are you watching for to see? We expect him to move towards his XFIP, but they don't always. Yeah, now, XFIP, um, to me, when I, when I see XFIP, that regresses homers. So, you know, when I look at, you know, I look at FIP and XFIP, Sierra in, in HQ zone, expected ERA. To me, sort of the, the asterisk with XFIP is why it makes it different is it regresses homers. So that's, you know, in my, my, how many minor leagues home runs is he giving up? And if it's, if, if, the, if the, the, uh, the delta between ERA and XFIP is, if he has very few homers, I'm concerned that when you get to the major leagues facing major league batters, that that home run rate's going to go up. Uh, better lighting, better parks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're giving up too many homers in the minor leagues, well, now you got now your narrative can be all over the place. Uh, you know, you come up and it could go down, it could go up. I mean, you could you could argue whoever you want, but that's what I that's what my what I focus on is the number of homers. Now, in 2019, with 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 Bowie. He gave up 14 homers in 59 innings. That's that's a ton, right? That's <laughs> that's that's one every four innings. That's a lot of that's a lot of homers. So that's why when you regress when you regress the 14 homers to league norm, that's why his FIP is going. His ER, that's why the you know the XFIP will come down. So that's what I watch out for. Now, when you give up home runs. Why do you give up home runs? Are you fly ball pitcher? That uh, you, that sort of thing. And nowadays. It's uh, you know with the with the uppercut swing, it's uh, it's not as easy to figure out why you're giving up so many homers. That's the difference in uh in if he's he was starting with with Bowie. So if he's giving up a lot of homers on his secondaries, if he now is a reliever, will he cease to be so generous to the long ball if he's not using that changeup that uh, that's given up so many homers? So it takes a deeper dive. But those, you know, home runs, especially with XFIP, is what I look at. Very interesting stuff, Todd. It was a very interesting read. Uh, there's more players in the actual column than we talked about. Uh, thanks again for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week. All right, Patrick, have a good week. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics, international tariffs and trade. Ah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball, and one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? 
The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho-Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. Find out more by going to BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Texas right-handed relief pitcher Emmanuel Close, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He was a player to be named later in the May 2018 trade that sent catcher Brett Nicholas to San Diego, and he's making a name for himself in the big leagues quickly. Called up by the Texas Rangers on August 4th and added to Patrick Davitt's Baseball HQ Writers Only Keeper League team, Wonk for short, shortly thereafter, for a dollar no less, 21-year-old right-hander Emmanuel Classe is already drawing comparisons to Mariano Rivera for his virtually unhittable cutter. Whoa, wait a second, back up. Sure, Emmanuel Classe has a sizzling cut fastball that tops out around 102 miles per hour, but almost any comparison, yes, any comparison to the great Mariano Rivera would seem unfair at best at this point. That's why Emmanuel Classe like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, averaging over one strikeout per inning pitched is a pretty good indication of a dominant pitcher. Consider this. Manuel Classe torched 195 batters in 191 career minor league innings pitched before his August 4th promotion, that translates to a career minor league dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine, where we at BaseballHQ.com look for dominance rates of nine strikeouts per nine or higher to indicate baseball's best pitchers. And sometimes at BaseballHQ.com, we even look at who Patrick Davitt picks up off the waiver wire. And in this case, Emmanuel Classe is no exception. In fact, in this case, Emmanuel Classe has been exceptional. Averaging eight strikeouts per nine for the Texas Rangers, pitching out of the pen, where he is often placed in high-leverage situations. And why wouldn't he be? 
According to Major League Baseball's StatCast, only San Diego's Andres Munoz, with a cut fastball that averages 98.9 miles per hour instead of Emmanuel Classe's 98.8 miles per hour, has a higher cutter velocity. And that's really splitting hairs. Or at least cutting them, if you prefer. Seriously, though. Emmanuel Classe currently has the second-highest average velocity as four-seam fastball in Major League Baseball, not including Jordan Hicks at 101, who is out for the season. Once again, Andres Munoz tops the list, followed by Emmanuel Classe, then our frequent flyer from March 29, 2019, Tehran Guerrero ranks third in four-seamers, just a tick behind Emmanuel Classe at 98.8 miles per hour. So don't be a tick behind in your league. Consider adding, or at least trading, Patrick Davitt for Emmanuel Classe as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with a marquee matchup. Actually, two marquee National League East matchups in New York, where Atlanta faces the Mets. On Saturday, left-hander Max Fried is up against right-hander Zach Wheeler, and on Sunday it's an all-lefty tilt with Dallas Keuchel facing Steven Matz. And here with the lowdowns on all the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend, we have a pair of marquee matchups in which both starters own matchup ratings in the strong start recommendation range. Pitcher-friendly City Field is the site for both marquee matchups as the hometown New York Mets host the division-leading Atlanta Braves. All four starters have matchup ratings between 057 and 090, and the matchup rating differentials are just 0.11 and 0.19. Matchups don't get much closer than that, and the Mets' Major League Best records over their past 20 and 30 games gives this set the air of a pennant chase with only five weeks to go in the regular season. The two teams are fresh off a face-off in Atlanta last week where the Braves took two of three from the Mets. The Braves lead the season series 8-5 going in. The Braves also lead the National League East by six games over the Nats and nine games over the Mets and Phils. Both New York and Philly are a game and a half behind St. Louis for the second National League wildcard spot. According to BaseballReference.com's formula, their 22-8 hot streak over those past 30 games improved the Mets' odds of making the postseason by 32.8%. The trouble is, New York's overall chances are still only 34.3%. Atlanta is at 99.7%. Within the division, the Braves are 34-21, the Mets are 30-27. At home, New York is 36-21, on the road, Atlanta is 38-25. Against teams over 500, the Braves are 41 and 34, the Mets are 33 and 43. The two teams' season-long run differentials reflect Atlanta's increasingly obvious edge as the Braves are plus 71 and the Mets are plus 24. For Saturday's marquee matchup, Braves 25-year-old left-hander Max Fried brings in a matchup rating of 0.68 and the Mets 29-year-old righty Zach Wheeler has a matchup rating of 0.57 for an Atlanta advantage of 0.11. Freed is showing signs of growth in his first full major league season. He has a BPV of 119, a control rate of 2.8 walks per nine, supported by a first pitch strike rate of 64%, and a dom rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine for a command ratio of 3.3 strikeouts per walk. Freed's ERA is 384, and his expected ERA is an even better 368. 
His one weakness is in whip, where Freed's unlucky 35% hit rate contributes to a whip of 140. If you're chasing wins, though, Freed could help. He has 14 victories, including five of his past six starts. It took Zach Wheeler two and a half years to make it back from ulnar collateral ligament replacement surgery, and he had a beautiful breakout last season. This year, his surface stats make it seem as if Wheeler is stumbling. That's because his ERA has risen from 331 to 440, and his whip has risen from 112 to 127, reducing his roto value from $14 to $4. But how about these stats? Wheeler is putting up career bests in batters faced per game at 26.4, control rate at 2.3 walks per nine, dominance rate at 9.2 strikeouts per nine, command ratio at four strikeouts per walk, first pitch strike rate at 67%, swinging strike rate at 11%, average fastball velocity at 96.7 miles per hour, and BPV at 128. He has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 42% dominant to 13% disaster. Of his 10 PQS dominant outings, though, just six have resulted in wins for Wheeler. If wins matter more than whip for your team, it's better to try Freed than Wheeler. Sunday's marquee matchup features Dallas Keuchel and his matchup rating of 071 for the Braves versus Steven Matz and his matchup rating of 090 for the Mets. Keuchel made his first start for Atlanta on June 21, and it was a PQS disaster. So was his second start. His next 10 outings include two PQS dominance and three PQS disasters. A PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 17% dominant to 42% disaster is only one of Keuchel's worrisome metrics. The following 2019 peripherals are worsts since 2013. A whip of 134, a control rate of three walks per nine, a command ratio of 2.5 strikeouts per walk, a first pitch strike rate of 56%, a home run per fly ball rate of 30%, and a 5 by 5 value of zero. If we gave him mulligans on his first two starts, things would look a bit better for Keuchel. Since then, his whip is 126, his expected ERA is 360, and his BPV is 100. And New York's 13-17 and 17 record against left-handers helps, but there's plenty to worry about with Keuchel. The Mets, Steven Matz, isn't exactly worry-free himself, but he's also ascending. In his past six starts, Metz has three PQS dominance and three PQS decents. He was briefly demoted to the bullpen after some severe struggles in June, but Matz has posted BPVs of 105 to 125 in the other four months. In seven starts since his five-game rolling ERA rose to 10.24 in relief on July 6, Matz has brought it down to 2.56 by allowing two or fewer earned runs in six of those seven outings. Matz's development has been slowed by injuries, and it's never easy to pinpoint when a young left-hander starts to find consistent success, but this may be the moment for Matz. He deserves the favorable matchup rating differential of 019. The five largest marquee mismatchups this weekend include two at Cleveland's hitter-friendly Progressive Field and two at pitcher-friendly PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Tribe hitters will have an added advantage against Kansas City pitchers with combined matchup rating differentials against them of minus 819. And the Pirates pitchers' combined matchup rating differentials of minus 287 should make Reds hitters feel as if they are still at home in Great American's small park. So if you're chasing wins, Mike Clevenger and Alex Wood look good on Saturday, and Shane Bieber and Trevor Bauer should shine on Sunday. On Saturday, pick Max Freed over Zach Wheeler if you need wins and can handle an elevated whip. Wheeler over Freed if you need help with whip and are not chasing wins. On Sunday, hold out hope that Stephen Matz's moment has arrived. Go to the Teams tab at BaseballHQ.com and use our Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day and your hitters every week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about where have all the Lima guys gone. In my tout American League League last week, I traded to acquire Vladimir Guerrero Jr., a very useful third baseman who should be a substantial help replacing DJ Stewart on my roster. I got Michael Givens, a closer of sorts, and Danny Jansen, a catcher of sorts, who will be a modest upgrade on Kevin Plowecki as my second catcher. To get this relatively modest haul, I gave back the aforementioned Plowecki for roster balance reasons and my last two starting pitchers, Trevor Bauer and Jose Barrios. I didn't trade Bauer and Barrios because I've lost faith in them. This was purely a category play. My team is pretty much stuck in wins and strikeouts. I projected the stats to the end of the season, and it looks that way. I'm not going to gain or lose too much, especially with only two starters to the nearby team, six or seven starters apiece. But my trade partner's team, adding those two starters, should help him climb to second place in wins and to first place in strikeouts. And more importantly for me, as he scrambles up those category ladders, his size 12 Brogans will helpfully step heavily on the fingers of two teams I'm chasing in the overall race, causing them, I hope, to lose their grip on their current rungs and slide down a rung or two. And that will help me, probably not enough to win, but you gotta keep trying. Am I right? Now, another aspect of this deal is that I'm leading the league in both ERA and WHIP, or as my friend Gene McCaffrey likes to call them, the decimals. And as we all know from long experience, starting pitchers are dangerous to our decimals. And Lima-type middle relievers, those high-skill guys, they're safe. So replacing my starting pitchers with some Lima guys was part of my overall plan. I needed to protect my decimals. I downloaded the Baseball HQ year-to-date and projections for all the pitchers and inserted them into an Excel book with all the league free agent pitchers this week and the pitchers on my roster. Using the Lima reliever guidelines used by HQ's bullpens columnist Doug Dennis earlier this year, that is, a dominance of nine strikeouts per nine innings or higher, command ratio of three strikeouts per walk or higher, and a home run per nine innings of one or lower, My current 10 reliever pitching staff includes one guy who is Lima-worthy both year-to-date and projected. That's Ian Kennedy. I have one reliever who has been Lima-worthy year-to-date, but is not projected. Ty Buttry. His projected command is a little too low at 2.6. I have five relievers who are Lima-projected, but not year-to-date. Michael Givens, Shane Green, Will Harris, Oliver Perez, and Hector Rondon. And I have three who are not Lima-worthy either year-to-date or projected, Adam Simber, Emilio Pagan, and Nick Whitgren. The way I figure it, I have to hold on to Kennedy, Green, Givens, and Pagan. I need the potential saves because it's a tight category in my league. Givens and Green are also projected Lima, so I can justify it that way as well. I also want to hold Harris, Perez, and Rondon. They're all projected Lima-worthy, and they play on good teams, so they have some vulture wins potential. That leaves Buttry, Simber, and Whitgren. Even though I usually like pitchers with oddball deliveries like Simber's sidearm submarine style, he pretty much has to go to the top of my drop list. His year-to-date dominance is under 6.0 strikeouts per nine, and frankly, he's been pretty ghastly lately. Whitgren would be next. He has a 7.7 dominance, but a 1.5 homers per nine. Death for relievers. Buttry might be the bubble guy. His 
projected Lima worthiness is held back by that projected command of 2.6 strikeouts per walk that I mentioned, but he's a sub one home run per nine guy, both year to date and projected. And in today's game, you have to give at least a wink towards those low home run pitchers. The trouble here is that even if I want to drop any or all of these three guys, there are almost no Lima relievers in the free agent pool in my tout American League only. One reliever is both Lima qualified for the year to date and for the projections, Rafael Montero of Texas. There are three relievers who are Lima year to date but not projected, Marcus Walden of Boston, Buck Farmer of Detroit, and Sam Tuivailala of Seattle. And 13 more are projected Lima-worthy, but are not year-to-date. Luis Sessa of the Yankees, Trevor May of Minnesota, Phil Otto Maton of Cleveland, Reggie McLean of Seattle, and Emmanuel Classe of Texas, who reportedly throws fastballs of 160 miles an hour. Although I live in Canada, we use kilometers, so I might be a bit confused. But still. Maton was part of the three-way Trevor Bauer trade coming to Cleveland from San Diego. He's thrown five innings over three appearances for Cleveland in two blowout games and one close one. He's allowed two earned runs and four base runners with one home run. I'll probably pass, although our league allows zero bids in fab and I might try that. McLean is at the very bottom of the HQ depth chart in Seattle. There was a story about him recently in the Seattle Times, says he added a little weight and some velocity while he was climbing the minor league ladder this year from high A all the way to the majors. He struggled in his first outing in Seattle, giving up three runs in one inning, including two home runs. Ouch. He's settled down since, giving up one earned run, five hits, and three walks in 8.2 innings over four appearances. Maybe worth another zero bid just in case. I should say that in mixed leagues and other shallower formats, there will be a bigger selection of Lima relievers in the free agent pool. And for that matter, many teams will have such good starters in such leagues, they'll have no need of Lima protection for their decimals. But even if you're in a mixed 12 or 15 team league and your decimals look tight, don't forget to at least scan through your free agent pool for that protection. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 37 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition of the show, Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene is a good friend of mine and of the podcast. He's a fine analyst and baseball writer and a damn good rock guitar player. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. 
Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. And if they have the feature, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and that really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.